0: In recent years, there have been charges from time to time that the CIA has involved itself in illegal activities. Some of the most bizarre to date involve a bank in Australia known as Nugent Hand. And tonight, Gary Shepard has a report. When the Nugent Hand Bank of Sydney, Australia collapsed in 1980, it appeared at first glance to be just another bank failure. But after Australian authorities began taking a closer look, they discovered a tangled web of intrigue, with all the elements of a best-selling spy novel, a mysterious death, the body later dug up from its grave, illegal currency transactions, big-time drug operations, and the Central Intelligence Agency. We were to become uh, the paymasters for the CIA around the world. In other words, we were putting ourselves in the position to uh, disperse funds for the CIA to whoever they were directed. Former bank executive Neil Evans, given immunity from prosecution, agreed to talk about the Nugent Hand operation on Australian television. From his account and others, the bank had its genesis during the Vietnam War. Four of the original stockholders were Americans who listed their addresses as Air America, Army Post Office, San Francisco. Air America was the CIA airline in Indochina, hauling men and supplies on clandestine missions. And according to former CIA agents, even drugs, out of the so-called Golden Triangle, where the borders of Burma, Laos, and Thailand converge. Nugan Han sent Neil Evans to the Thai city of Chiang Mai, the commercial center of the drug trade. He claims the CIA made millions and used the money to finance some of its secret projects. The idea was that money would be deposited with the Nugent Hand Bank by the CIA through various channels, and also that the Nugent Hand Bank would be the repository for funds coming in from various um, CIA enterprises, namely drugs in Thailand, marijuana in particular, and that the bank, the Nugent Hand Bank, would then be responsible for rerouting that money to an account in America with a New York bank. Nugent Hand was not your ordinary bank. There were secret numbered accounts, and hardly any of its top people were bankers. Many were American civilians and former high ranking military officers with ties to U.S. intelligence. When they found the body of Australian businessman Frank Nugan, the bank's chairman, shot to death a few months before the bank went under, they discovered in his pocket the business card of this man, William Colby, former director of the CIA. Nugan's partner was Michael Hand, an American Green Beret who served two tours in Vietnam, one of them for the Central Intelligence Agency. He disappeared a short while after the bank collapsed and is now believed to be dead. Australian newspapers reported a connection between Nugent Hand and the U.S. Navy's super-secret intelligence unit known as Task Force 157. Among its top agents, CIA man Edwin Wilson, now under indictment for selling arms and explosives to Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi. And a man named Patry Loomis has also been implicated. He was the apparent CIA Nugent Hand go-between. It was Loomis who helped Wilson recruit a team of Green Berets to train terrorists in Libya. The Nugent Hand Affair has caused an uproar in Australia where authorities are trying to find out what involvement the bank might have had in the 1975 downfall of the Labour Party government. Meanwhile, investigators on three continents are attempting to trace $50 million missing from the accounts of depositors, including many Americans. Here in this country, the CIA denies any involvement with drug operations in Indochina, the Nugent Hand Bank itself, or the deaths of the two men who ran it. Gary Shepard, CBS News, Los Angeles.
1: Amidst the chaos of the Watergate affair, Henry Kissinger appeared to be somewhat of an outsider, despite the fact that he joined the Nixon administration as an esteemed intellectual with deep ties to the Rockefeller-dominated Eastern establishment. His advocacy for arms control, diffusing tensions with the Soviet Union, and establishing relations with China differentiated him from the tenacious, semi-covert web of intelligence agents, lobbyists, influential figures, and businessmen who leaned towards the Taiwanese nationalist Chinese and increased support of the military-industrial complex. Prior to Watergate, These lines seemed etched in stone, but as time wore on, the face-off between liberal reformers and staunch conservatives intensified, causing the once-rigid boundaries to waver and blur. Kissinger, in particular, seemed to experience a major geopolitical shift during this time, realigning his commitments to mirror those of the newly emerging power bloc. Towards the later years of the 1970s, he secured a position at the DC-based think tank the Center for Strategic and International Studies CSIS. As pointed out by author Jerry Sanders, CSIS and its affiliate, the American Enterprise Institute set themselves up in competition with bodies such as the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission. Spearheading the CSIS was Ray Klein, a former deputy director of the CIA and an experienced player involved with the China lobby. Klein was also a veteran of the OSS and had served in the China theater alongside the likes of Paul Helliwell, E. Howard Hunt, and John K. Singlob. Additionally, Klein openly opposed the Nixon-Kissinger policies of detente and the outreach to China. In order to align with these new allies and associates, Henry Kissinger shifted towards a more stringent stance on the ongoing arms reduction dialogues with the Soviet Union. During this time, a formidable network of new right activist groups, think tanks, advocacy bodies and donors had rallied in opposition of detente and arms reduction. Instead, they demanded a surge in military spending and a more aggressive approach towards the Soviet Union. Many of these organizations were anchored in traditional powerhouses, such as the Heritage Foundation, where Robert Keith Gray held position, as well as the Committee on the Present Danger, the AFL-CIO, and the American Security Council, which Yvonne Dilling and Ingrid Rogers refer to as the heart and soul of the military-industrial complex. Emerging groups such as the Conservative Caucus, the Coalition for Peace Through Strength, and the Free Congress Foundation began to mark their presence as well, drawing financial support from philanthropic bodies such as the Scaife, Oland and Cook Foundations. Other dynamic entities in this sphere included Reverend Moon's Unification Church, which was deeply interconnected with the China lobby and the Korean Central Intelligence Agency. Ray Klein and Alexander Haig were amongst the Unification Church's top U.S. allies. Another intriguing figure involved with the Unification Church was direct mail wizard Richard Vigory, the orchestrator behind a substantial chunk of the church's promotional campaigns, and a key player in many of its front organizations. Vigory was a member of the Georgetown Club and collaborated with several groups during this period he conducted operations on behalf of the conservative caucus and was involved in various anti-disarmament campaigns that were led by organizations such as the Committee on the Present Danger. All of these activities were managed from Vickery's headquarters, located at 7777 Leesburg Pike Falls Church, Virginia. Intriguingly, Dislocation would come to play a pivotal role in the clandestine world of Ted Shackley, Edwin Wilson, and Thomas Kleins. Despite the growing proponents of hawkish foreign relations during the 1970s, reform efforts within the intelligence community were underway. One prominent reformist was Admiral Bobby Ray Inman who served as Director of Naval Intelligence in 1974. Following this, Inman served as Vice Deputy of the Defense Intelligence Agency, Director of the National Security Agency, and Deputy Director of the CIA under William Casey. Bobby Inman advocated for signal intelligence meaning intelligence gathered via electronic means as opposed to traditional human intelligence gathering techniques, and had a marked aversion to what he perceived as waste, inefficiency, and redundancy within the intelligence community. He was viewed as a moderate figure, serving as a counterbalance to individuals such as Ted Shackley who remained dedicated to covert programs and black operations. For example, in 1976, Task Force 157 found itself on the chopping block. In Bobby Inman's eyes, the task force was an expensive unit of dubious benefit to the Navy. At the time, lingering rumors and insinuations suggested that Task Force 157 via Edwin Wilson, had become entangled in covert operations that drastically deviated from its declared mandate. For instance, in 1975, Wilson initiated a series of peculiar business dealings with Bernie Houghton of Nugent Hand, a bank based in Australia that was predominantly managed by alleged former U.S. intelligence officials. Bernie Houghton had worked in Vietnam alongside many of Ted Shackley's key operators and was a known figure amongst the individuals surrounding Edwin Wilson. At the same time Bernie Houghton and Wilson began associating, the Nugent Hand Bank seemed to be facilitating arm sales to paramilitary groups in South Africa. The funds for the arms were organized through a network of banks, including Nugent Hand's Hong Kong subsidiary. But when it came to acquiring and transporting the arms, Bernie Houghton and his partner Michael Hand sought out the expertise of Edwin Wilson. Reading from an official Australian government report on the criminal activities of the Nugent Hand Bank, there was a number of meetings between Wilson, Houghton, and others over a relatively short period of time. Subsequently, under the cover of Task Force 157, Wilson placed an order for something like 10 million rounds of ammunition, 3,000 weapons including machine guns, M1 carbines, and others. The shipment is believed to have left the U.S. from Boston. The end-user certificate indicated that Wilson's Task Force 157 front company, World Marine, was the U.S. purchasing agent, while the middle company or buyer's agent was an Australian company but not Nugan hand. The name given as the buyer was Portuguese and was a name that had been used previously and possibly after by World Marine and other unrelated covert operations. There was also speculations that Task Force 157 and Nugent Hand played a role in undermining the Australian government of Go Whitlam. At the time, Whitlam was contemplating shutting down Pine Gap, an American satellite monitoring station that was facilitating covert CIA operations. News of Whitlam's intentions quickly reached the CIA brass through Ted Shackley. According to Victor Marchetti, a senior CIA officer, Whitlam's threat to close Pine Gap caused apoplexy in the White House. Subsequently, a kind of Chile coup was set in motion. This event was the potential knell in the coffin for Bobby Ray Inman, who concluded that Task Force 157 was out of control. Edwin Wilson attempted to negotiate with Inman, suggesting that if Task Force 157 were dismantled, another, more effective organization should be established, presumably with Wilson securing the lucrative contracts to manage it. Ted Shackley also tried to intervene, proposing to Inman that dismantling the task force and dismissing Wilson would result in the loss of a major intelligence asset. Shackley must have been convincing because Inman told him that if he found Wilson so invaluable, he could reinstate him on the CIA payroll. However, the task force was ultimately disbanded. Edwin Wilson, by all appearances, was out of a job, and events were set in motion that would eventually lead to his public demise. In December 1975, Just before Inman started the process of dismantling Task Force 157, Wilson crossed paths with a former CIA operative named Frank Turpel. At the time, Turpel headed a company named Intercontinental Technology, a subsidiary of Stanford Technology, whose owner was Albert Hakim, an Iranian businessman who functioned as a secret intermediary between Iran and Israel. Edwin Wilson was already acquainted with Albert Hakim, courtesy of an introduction by Richard Secord. Stanford technology would later play a significant role in the Iran-Contra affair. It was at this point that Frank Turple propositioned Edwin Wilson with a business venture that revolved around sourcing weapons and sensitive technologies for the Libyan government of Muammar Gaddafi. Turpel had been conducting trade with Libya in collaboration with a Pennsylvania businessman named James McElroy. According to author Peter Mass, McElroy had been one of the first entrepreneurs to cash in on money-flush OPEC oil nations in Africa and the Middle East. McElroy began supplying them with everything from Pampers to pistols. Gradually, Libya became one of his biggest customers, and from Pampers it became more and more pistols. However, what the Libyans hoped to procure from Turpel and Wilson was heavier equipment, specifically C4 plastic explosives and a Red Eye missile. With Ted Shackley and Thomas Klein's blessings, Wilson went to work in Libya. The undertaking swiftly broadened into a training program for Libyan fighters. To execute this, Wilson and Turpel established a front company named Intertechnology, along with several other export companies. Ex-CIA officers like Kevin Mulcahy were recruited to manage these businesses, while the covert training program was staffed by former Green Berets. Among these instructors was Eugene Tafoya, a beefy, acne-scarred tough guy widely disliked by his comrades, who after a few glasses of flash, the Libyan equivalent of homemade gin, would boast about all the people he'd killed behind enemy lines in Vietnam. Before long, Tofoya found himself working under Edwin Wilson as a hitman, where he was subcontracted to the Libyan government for an ultimately ill-fated assassination plot against political dissidents residing overseas. During this time, Wilson continued to relay information with Ted Shackley and Thomas Kleins. Reportedly, he was also feeding information to Savak, the intelligence agency under the purview of the Shah of Iran. At this juncture, Ted Shackley's prominence within the CIA was continuing to rise. In January 1976, George H.W. Bush was appointed Director of the CIA under President Gerald Ford, and Shackley was promoted to the position of Assistant Deputy Director for Operations. However, Shackley aspired to become director himself, and he fully anticipated succeeding H.W. Bush. According to Peter Dell Scott, Jonathan Marshall, and Jane Hunter, Shackley had been earmarked to become the CIA director if Gerald Ford had won the re-election. But this aspiration was never realized. Gerald Ford lost the election and was succeeded by Jimmy Carter. George H.W. Bush was subsequently removed from his position as Director of Central Intelligence and was replaced by Admiral Stansfield Turner. Turner was an outsider in the agency's realm. As a career naval officer and former classmate of Jimmy Carter, he was chosen to restructure the CIA. Under Turner's leadership, large sectors of the agency dedicated to covert operations and special warfare were systematically dismantled, fundamentally altering the character and culture of the CIA. Shackley managed to survive these reform efforts for a brief time, compartmentalizing what was left of the Directorate of Operations in an attempt to keep it hidden from the vigilant eyes of Jimmy Carter and Stansfield-Turner. However, in 1979, Shackley retired from the CIA, apparently to focus on a series of private business ventures. In reality, these ventures were part of a private intelligence network that he had been constructing for several years. The idea was that this private intelligence network would serve as a foundation for reversing Jimmy Carter's reform efforts, once a more sympathetic president inevitably replaced him. Unsurprisingly, this private CIA found itself embroiled in a series of international affairs long before this could happen. Much of this network was financed with money supplied by Edwin Wilson Reportedly, Wilson provided Thomas Klein's with a loan to set up a company called International Research and Trade (IRT), which served as a corporate shield for two other Klein's owned companies, System Services International (SSI) and API Distributors (SSI) incorporated in Bermuda was later characterized by Shackley as initially conceived to be a securities trading company. During his testimony at the Iran-Contra hearings, he claimed that SSI conducted very minimal business. This was eventually proven to be false. Meanwhile, API Distributors was structured to act as a supplier for oil companies, one of its primary clients being Pemex a Mexican state-owned petroleum company. API had been registered as a Delaware corporation, but was based out of Houston, Texas, where it shared office space with Edwin Wilson's around-world shipping and chartering. API also seemed to have a penchant for incorporating old veterans of the agency's clandestine operations. Rafael Quintero and Ricardo Chavez, both seasoned operatives who served under the aegis of J.M. Wave, were enlisted on the API payroll and sent to Mexico, allegedly to work on the Pemex project. When asked about his role in these companies, Shackley offered aloof responses. Regarding SSI, he claimed to have done some unspecified work while for API, he presented himself as a consultant employee office manager striving to launch the company. When queried about IRT, he denied having any role, stating he had only a fleeting knowledge of this parent company owned by Thomas Kleins. Despite Shackley's attempts to create distance, various individuals linked with this private CIA, such as Thomas Kleins and Richard Secord made it quite clear to the FBI and other governmental agencies that Shackley was in command, that this private CIA was Shackley's private CIA. Further evidence arises in the Peculiar Office Arrangement of Research Associates International (RAI). A consultancy and risk analysis firm, Shackley launched in 1979. Just as API distributors shared office space with Wilson's around-world shipping and chartering, so too did RAI share offices with SSI and IRT. RAI staff featured multiple associates from Shackley's CIA tenure. Directors of the firm included Donald Jamieson, as well as an enigmatic Mr. Ledbetter, who may have been Calvin Hicks. If this was the case, Hicks would have been an acquaintance of Shackley from their time in J.M. Wave. RAI was established with specific focus on the oil industry, and it seems to have had only one exclusive client, John Deus John Deus, through a broad corporate network centered around Transworld Oil, operated in the nebulous realm of oil trading where he collaborated with the likes of notorious commodity trader and Mossad asset Mark Rich. Between 1979 and 1993, Deus dominated South Africa's oil imports, with Transworld Oil accounting for more than half of South Africa's oil purchases. Apart from John Deus, the other titans of this trade, which was essential for the sustenance of the South African apartheid regime, were Mark Rich and Merimpex, a German oil trading company. Interestingly, John Deus would later marry a former girlfriend of Jeffrey Epstein, Frances Jardine. Shackley and Deus were brought together through Shackley's extensive network of contacts. Michael Corey, who was then serving as president of Trans World Oil, facilitated the introduction between the two. According to Whitney Webb, Michael Corey had managed Royal Dutch Shell's Vietnam Division which was one of the primary firms recruited by the U.S. military to support the Vietnamese war effort. Ironically, well-established black markets led to a considerable quantity of shell petroleum being rerouted to the Viet Cong. It was during this period that Corey and Shackley became acquainted. Moreover, The Choice of Attorneys by Ted Shackley and Thomas Clines was rather intriguing. Shaw, Pittman, Potts, and Trowbridge, a prestigious D.C.-based law firm, was assigned the legal legwork for establishing Research Associates International, System Services International, and International Research and Trade. According to authors Terry Reed and John Cummings, The firm was very much aligned with the CIA and had a history of offering criminal defense for intelligence agents. Notably, one former CIA officer on the firm's payroll at that time was William Barr, who would later serve as the attorney general for both George H.W. Bush and Donald Trump. William Barr had worked for the CIA from 1973 to 1977 before joining Shaw, Pittman, Potts, and Trowbridge in 1978. However, it remains unclear whether he worked on any of the accounts associated with the private CIA during his tenure. Barbara Rosati, another lawyer at the firm, acted as Thomas Klein's attorney. Her name appears in FBI files in relation to the Egyptian American Air Transport and Services Corporation, EATSCO. This company was owned by two corporate entities. Tersam, a Virginia company launched by an Egyptian intelligence officer turned businessman, Hussein K. Salem, held a 51% stake, while the remaining 49% was held by Thomas Klein's SSI. Intriguingly, the headquarters of Eats Co. was situated in a familiar location, 7777 Leesburg Pike, a building that was also a nexus for the burgeoning new right network of Richard Vickery and his associates. Tightening these connections, Klein stated that Salem was operating out of the Ramada Inn located next to 7777 Leesburg Pike throughout this period, and that the hotel's bar had been a popular agency watering hole in the past. Following the Camp David Accords, Eatsko would act as an intermediary in arms deals between the Pentagon and the Egyptian government. From the outset, it was evident that this was not a typical arrangement as most Pentagon-related arms sales did not involve any commercial entities like Eats Co. This fact makes it somewhat unsurprising that Eats Co. was later implicated in a fraud scheme to overprice the Pentagon for shipment costs. Inside the Pentagon, Richard Secord, a future co-conspirator in the Iran-Contra affair, approved the inflated prices demanded by Eats Co., when Lawrence Barcella, the prosecutor for Edwin Wilson, began investigating EATSCO in the early 1980s, he was visited by Michael LaDine, another Shackley-Klein associate and future Iran-Contra co-conspirator. According to the New York Times, LaDine suggested to Lawrence Barcella that any alleged billing abuses might have been rerouted to fund a covert operation. This implicates that EATSCO may have been diverting Pentagon money to finance the activities of the private CIA. Rumors do exist that EATSCO was also covertly running arms to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan as well as other CIA-backed fighters in Cold War hotspots. Edwin Wilson appears to have been involved with the activities of EATSCO as well. Journalists have associated a series of significant loans to SSI made by Wilson with EATSCO, and handwritten notes by Eugene Tafoya, the former Green Beret employed by Wilson for covert operations, referred to the company. Additionally, Systems Engineering International Corporation, a security equipment supplier used by EATSCO, was owned and managed by Donald Lauer, the former manager of Wilson's sprawling Virginia farm. Astonishingly, Systems Engineering International, like all the other companies in this complex, drew on the legal resources of Shaw, Pittman, Potts, and Trowbridge and operated from an office located adjacent to Eatsco and the other companies operating from 7777 Leesburg Pike. By the mid-1970s, Wilson had acquired control of another law firm specializing in the protection of heads of state, Joseph J. Capucci Associates. The firm was founded by Air Force veteran Joseph J. Capucci, who was no stranger to the world of intelligence. During World War II, Capucci made his mark as an Army Air Corps counterintelligence officer and, post-war, acted as a liaison between Air Force Intelligence and the CIA before heading the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. The exact mechanics of Wilson's acquisition of Capucci's firm remain unknown, and no solid paper trail exists to illustrate the interactions between the two men. However, what does stand undisputed is the eventual incorporation of the firm into the intricate web of the private CIA. This occurred when Edwin Wilson sold his stake in Capucci's Enterprise to Thomas Kleins, Donald Lauer, and Neil Livingstone, the man briefly mentioned for his connections with Robert Keith Gray and the Page Boy scandal. Reportedly, The purchase of Wilson's shares was funded using U.S. government expropriation funds amassed when the Panamanian government usurped control of an airline that Livingstone and a collaborator had acquired. That airline was Air Panama. Between 1976 and 1979, Livingstone spent time in Panama where he crossed paths with the infamous Mossad operative Michael Harari. Harari's checkered career began with an early initiation into the Haganah. At the age of 13, he acted as a courier before advancing into their elite fighting corps, the Palmach. Following the birth of Israel, he joined the Israel Defense Force and was later recruited by Mossad. During the early 70s, Harari led covert units across Europe in hunting down members of Black September, the Palestinian group responsible for the Munich Olympics massacre. These teams were notorious for leaving a wake of collateral damage and dead civilians. Despite this troubling track record, Harari was promoted and assigned to oversee Mossad operations in Latin America. Over time, Panama gradually became the hub of Harari's activities. According to Neil Livingstone, Panama City had morphed into an intelligence hub, a sort of Latin American Beirut or Vienna. Harari developed a particularly close relationship with Manuel Noriega who at the time was the head of Panama's intelligence network. Noriega maintained a convoluted web of intelligence and was simultaneously on the payrolls of the CIA and the Dirección General de Inteligencia, Cuba's intelligence directorate. In Livingstone's words, Noriega's relationship with the DGI became a valuable pipeline of information on Palestine Liberation Organization activities for Harari and his superiors back in Israel. By the 1980s, Harari had ostensibly detached himself from Assad and was carving out a niche as an arms merchant and security expert for Manuel Noriega. Jose Castillo, a high-ranking advisor to Noriega in his testimony to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee's Subcommittee on Terrorism, Narcotics, and International Operations, which is more commonly referred to as the Kerry Committee, accused Harari of operating a network that was responsible for funneling guns and drugs across Latin America. Unbeknownst at the time, this same logistical network was laying the foundation for later Contra support initiatives. Importantly, Harari also maintained close communication with Dwayne Claridge, the CIA officer overseeing these initial efforts. Neil Livingstone's involvement with the Joseph J. Capucci Associates was among his first undertakings following his time in Panama. It was during this time that a deal was brokered with the Egyptian government under Anwar Sadat to train the presidential security forces. J.M. Wave familiar and CIA-trained Cuban operative Felix Rodriguez was tapped to steer this operation. This initiative formed part of a broader network of arrangements being orchestrated by Edwin Wilson and Thomas Kleins. It was these arrangements that ultimately resulted in the Eats Code deal. Wilson and Kleins would later divulge to journalist Morgan Strong that deals of this nature were often facilitated through a kickback in which substantial sums were funneled to Anwar Sadat via Hosni Mubarak in exchange for the contracts. The primary support system for Eatsco in these deals was Global International Airways, a charter airline and cargo service based in Kansas City that was established in the late 1970s by Iranian-born entrepreneur Farhad Azima. The airline was supposedly set up to transport cattle from Nebraska to Iran. That is until diplomatic ties were severed following the 1979 Islamic Revolution. Considering Azima's alleged ties to Savak, the Iranian secret police, it is plausible that these flights transported more than just livestock. To kickstart Global International Airways, Azima secured a multi-million-dollar loan from the Commercial Credit Corporation. The airline initially started with a single Boeing 707, but rapidly expanded to become one of the world's largest private air carriers, with 17 707s, two 727s, and one 747. According to author Joseph Trento, Farhad Azima was essentially a figurehead for the private CIA asserting that Global International was in fact crafted by James Cunningham, a subordinate of Ted Shackley who had managed the CIA's Air America complex out of Laos. While this claim remains unverified, there are inklings of this network's involvement in Global International's inception. While not compelling, one of Azima's pilots had previously been employed by Air America. However, another more substantive link was the source of Azima's loan, the Commercial Credit Corporation, a finance and lending subsidiary of the Control Data Corporation. The Control Data Corporation was a supercomputer firm that had been a prominent defense contractor since its establishment at the end of World War II. Around 1976, just prior to commercial credit supplying Gazimo with the seed capital for Global International Airways, Controlled Data Corporation brought Edwin Wilson on board as a consultant. The objective was to exploit Wilson's network to offload some outdated computers on third world countries. However, the collaboration between Wilson and the corporation appears to have been far more expansive than mere export operations. Wilson later faced allegations of planting bugs in the offices of the U.S. Army Material Command in order to glean inside information on bidding and procurement plans for the corporation. Before Global International Airways met its end in the mid-1980s, Azima managed to accrue massive debts with various financial institutions, most notably with the Indian Springs State Bank in Kansas, which faced its own collapse alongside Global International. Intriguingly, Azima had been appointed as a director at Indian Springs State Bank while the bank's vice president, Anthony Russo, served as a financial consultant for Global International Airways. Anthony Russo had been a high-profile criminal attorney in Kansas City and was infamous for representing members of the Savella crime family. In the aftermath of the bank's insolvency, Investigations revealed that Russo had involved Savella Crime Interest with Indian Springs State Bank. The crime family's accounts, according to a state banking examiner, were chronically overdrawn. Additionally, Indian Springs bankrolled large loans to the Dunes Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, which at the time was under the reign of Morris Schenker. Moore Schenker had served as Jimmy Hoffa's attorney and was deeply entangled in the corruption surrounding the Teamsters' pension fund. Schenker personally vouched for the loan from Indian Springs to the Dunes, while Azima acted as its sponsor. Global International Airways had a contract with some Las Vegas hotel casinos to charter junkets and seems to hold a central position in these business transactions. This network was yet another complex and obfuscated web of connections, whose tentacles intertwined with seemingly legitimate businesses. Traces of this network's influence can be found in all manners of corruption. A peculiar junction, as briefly highlighted by journalist Pete Bruton was the conglomerate of companies established in Louisiana by Vaughn Bobby Ross and Charles F. Haynes. Bobby Ross was a pilot with a military background, while Charles Haynes was a timberman. In 1979, the pair formed Commercial Helicopters which amassed a sizable fleet of 34 aircraft within a span of three years. The main operation of commercial helicopters involved ferrying personnel to and from the numerous oil rigs scattered across the Gulf of Mexico. However, there are indications suggesting a more sinister facet to the company, for instance Haynes and Ross leased helicopters from the Flying Tiger line, a company tightly intertwined with the China lobby and associated figures such as Anna Chenault and Robert Keith Gray. Additionally, Bruton mentions that commercial helicopters provided parts and services to a helicopter company in Guatemala named Helicopteros de Guatemala. Helicopteros de Guatemala was steered by Carl Jenkins, a veteran of the CIA's anti-Castro operations. From bases in Florida, Mexico, and the Caribbean, Jenkins served as case officer for several notable Cuban exiles, both of whom were intimately involved in the circles around Ted Shackley, Thomas Clines, and Edwin Wilson. During the Congressional Iran Contra Inquiry, Shackley revealed that he knew Jenkins and had last met him in the offices of Thomas Kleins, which Jenkins also utilized. Considering the location and the time period, it is plausible that these were the offices of API Distributor in Houston, Texas, which also shared space with Edwin Wilson's around-world shipping and chartering. Gene Wheaton, a close associate of Carl Jenkins and an early whistleblower in the Iran-Contra affair, mentioned to Pete Bruton that he had been introduced to Jenkins by the crowd around Edwin Wilson. According to Bobby Ross's 2018 obituary, He served a tour in Vietnam from 1969 to 1970 as a pilot in the 57th Assault Helicopter Company. Notably, during the same year, the 57th was tasked with providing support to the Military Assistance Command, Vietnam Studies, and Observation Group in their mission to send reconnaissance teams into Laos and Cambodia to locate and interdict North Vietnamese Army infiltration routes and their sources of supply. This implies that Ross was in close proximity to the covert war being waged in Laos, the CIA component of which was managed by Ted Shackley and his associates. Gene Wheaton's assertions regarding the business dealings of Ross and Haynes included the claim that Commercial Helicopters had purchased API distributors. Bobby Ross denied this to Pete Bruden. yet, oddly enough, Charles Haynes had established a company known as API Oil Tools and Supply. Like Commercial Helicopters, this company was registered in Louisiana, but the majority of its business operated out of Houston, Texas. Essential funding for commercial helicopters and API oil tools and supply was provided by Herman Beebe, the financial mastermind behind a sprawling network of banks and savings and loans across Louisiana, Texas, and other neighboring states. later implicated in the dramatic collapse of numerous savings and loans in the 1980s, had long-standing connections to the criminal underworld, some of which extended to the pinnacle of major American Mafia families. Numerous law enforcement sources have linked Herman Beebe to Carlos Marcello, the head of the New Orleans Mafia, whose reign reached well into Texas. In 1972, U.S. Customs agents and police raided a warehouse owned by BB in Shreveport, Louisiana. During the raid, agents discovered explosives and rigging devices intended for anti-Castro Cuban factions. While BB escaped charges related to this incident, several conspirators were apprehended including a close associate of the Gambino family named Murray Kessler, as well as the pilot hired to transport these explosives. This pilot was none other than Barry Seal, the infamous pilot operating on the CIA payroll, who was later implicated in cocaine smuggling operations that were associated with covert contra-support operations. According to Pete Bruton, Bobby Ross was a longtime friend of Barry Seal, and quoted Ross as saying, "We grew up together." This connection raises speculations regarding Seal's involvement in the early stages of the private CIA. Pete Bruton, in his study of the savings and loan crisis, Unearthed evidence hinting at the formation of another private intelligence network being formed during this time. The blueprint of this covert structure was allegedly drawn by George H.W. Bush. Reportedly, Bush had expressed willingness to remain head of the CIA to Jimmy Carter, but was rejected. Following this, Bush retreated to Texas and embarked on a fresh journey with a group of trusted associates and business collaborators. According to one of Bruton's informants, Bush's chief ally was William Blakemore II, an oil tycoon and rancher based in Midland, Texas. Interestingly, Tucked away in the vast banks of information gathered during the official investigation of the Iran-Contra affair, Blakemore's name emerges. Apparently, he was president of the Gulf and Caribbean Foundation, a so-called philanthropic body that was employed to funnel the money from private donors to the Nicaraguan Contras. Another source gave Bruton separate names, Walter Mischer, a high-profile real estate tycoon and banker based in Houston, Texas, who was a friend of William Blakemore, as well as Misher's son-in-law, Robert Corson. In 1991, Robert Corson was found dead in a motel room in El Paso after being indicted for money laundering and fraud. These indictments linked him to a sequence of strange financial transactions involving a series of savings and loans, as well as large mainstream banks. A notable figure amongst Bruton's sources was Richard Brennick, a notorious CIA-adjacent arms dealer and money launderer who later turned whistleblower for Iran-Contra and the October surprise. Bruton cites Brennick, stating Robert Corson worked with him in laundering money for the CIA. Intriguingly, Brennick's money laundering operations reportedly attracted the keen interest of Israeli intelligence. As per authors Gordon Thomas and Martin Dillon, Israeli intelligence studied his techniques with the help of the PROMISE software. PROMISE and Robert Maxwell maintained intimate ties that will be discussed later in the series. Pete Bruton also highlights the possibility of Corson's involvement with Israeli intelligence. He writes, A Texas law enforcement official who has worked with intelligence agencies confirmed Corson's work for the CIA. This officer stated that Corson also did work for the Israelis, but may not have known it because there were several layers of cutouts between Corson and the Israelis. Given these potential links to American and Israeli intelligence, it may be significant to note that direct connections existed between Walter Misher and Texas Senator John Tower, a member of the Georgetown Club, who was mentioned in the previous chapter due to his association with Tong Sun Park and Robert Maxwell. Mishra's association with Tower was facilitated by his role as a sort of political puppeteer. According to media reports, Misher possessed an unparalleled ability to amass funds for political candidates and leveraged this skill in favor of both Democrats and Republicans. Although he often supported Democrats such as Lloyd Benson, he had also been a longtime supporter of Republican John Tower. Misher's climb to the summit of political power in Texas was fueled by his extensive holdings in construction, manufacturing, real estate, and banking. As per his obituary, during World War II, Misher held the position of project manager at Stone & Webster. This East Coast engineering firm would later morph into a prominent defense contractor and was responsible for designing and building the laboratories used in the Manhattan Project. During this time, Misher also collaborated with the company to construct naval bases in the Caribbean. Post-war, Misher found himself entangled in a network of development companies, the most important of which was the Misher Corporation, which he owned until his death. The Misher Corporation owned thousands of acres of prime development land in the Houston area with affiliated companies engaged in street paving and selling air conditioning units to home builders. In conjunction with his close friend and associate, Howard L. Terry, Misher established another venture, Marathon Manufacturing. This company focused on producing heavy industrial equipment with a specialization in oil equipment and offshore drilling platforms. They solidified their niche in this field with the acquisition of one of the industry's leading companies, RG Latorno Incorporated, in 1970. Intriguingly, Latorno's first offshore oil platform had been constructed for Zapata Petroleum, the CIA-linked oil company that was founded by George H. W. Bush. In 1979, Marathon Manufacturing was acquired by Penn Central. This transaction left Misher and Terry with a substantial stake in Penn stock, which they liquidated in 1986 for $106 million. However, the most significant node in the Misher conglomerate was Allied Bank Shares, an expansive holding company that owned a multitude of banks throughout Texas. Allied's board was stocked with individuals from Misher's close-knit circle, offering a glimpse into his widespread old boys' network. It is possible that this same network was utilized by George H.W. Bush following his ousting as CIA director. Among Allied's board members were Howard Terry and Gerald Smith, who some considered Mischer's right-hand man. Gerald Smith's own banking interests extended into Louisiana and contained connections to organized crime and intelligence. Smith co-owned a bank with Herman Beebe, the savings and loan fraudster and mob insider. Reportedly, Beebe's own networks of banks and savings and loans were heavily financed by loans from allied bank shares. Throughout the 1980s, Houston investor and Misher's longtime associate, Jack T. Trotter, held the position of co chairman at Allied Bank Shares. A 1987 issue of Texas Monthly describes Trotter as a behind the scenes player steering the direction of the Houston business community with an extensive network of individuals enriched by his deals. Jack Trotter maintained a decades-long relationship with the influential Duncan family, which was overseen by patriarch John H. Duncan, Sr. Trotter, along with the Duncan family, undertook multiple ventures with Gerald D. Hines, another Houston developer and an associate of Walter Misher. Hines had a significant impact on Houston through his ambitious construction projects, which included the headquarters of Shell and Penzoil as well as the Galleria shopping districts. Gerald Hines will re-emerge in Columbus, Ohio as the developer and proprietor of the building housing Leslie Wexner's web of real estate and other holding companies. Intriguingly, Some of these companies were cited by Columbus police in connection with the murder of his company's tax attorney. The final noteworthy director at Allied Bank Shares was George A. Butler, who was then the senior partner at the influential Houston law firm of Butler, Binion, Rice, Cook, and Knapp. Alongside Jack Trotter, Butler retained a seat on the board of the Gulf Resources and Chemical Corporation of Houston. Gulf Resources was established with the assistance of Joseph Patton, a general partner at Bear Stearns. Raphael Bernstein, another Bear Stearns partner, also held a board seat at Gulf Resources well into the 1980s. Gulf Resources and Chemical Corporation produced a major portion of the United States' lithium supply, earning it consideration as a major national security concern. The corporation achieved notoriety in the 1970s when its president, Robert H. Allen, funneled money through a Mexican subsidiary and bank to Richard Nixon's Committee for the reelection of the President. These funds were subsequently used by the White House plumbers to fund the Watergate break-ins. Additionally, according to Whitney Webb, Robert Allen once served as the campaign finance chair for one of John Tower's Senate campaigns. Gulf Resources money funneling was largely facilitated by Bill Lidke, the founder and president of Pennzoil. Bill and his brother, J. Hugh Lidkey were two of George H. W. Bush's original business partners, and the brothers were part of the initial team that established Zapata Petroleum. In 1959, Bush and the Lidkeys decided to split Zapata into two companies, one half becoming Zapata Offshore and the other evolving into Pennzoil. Intriguingly, a 1976 report by the Senate Committee on Interior and Insular Affairs identified Bill Lidkey as a director of the Bank of Texas. While speculative, it's highly probable that this was the Continental Bank of Texas, headquartered in the Gerald Hines-designed Shell Plaza in Houston. This bank was established in 1973 the merger of Continental Bank and the Bank of Texas. The president of the newly merged bank was Gerald Smith while George Butler served as the chairman. The presence of these Walter Mischer cronies was no coincidence as the Continental Bank of Texas operated under the purview of allied bank chairs. During this same period H.W. Bush was allegedly establishing his own private intelligence network, he was also venturing into the banking industry. On February 23, 1977, the New York Times reported that he had been elected as a director of First International Bank Shares, a significant Houston bank holding company. Simultaneously, he was appointed to the board of its largest holding First International Bank, as well as its London-based merchant bank subsidiary, First National Bank Shares Limited. Russ Baker, in his biography of the Bush family, describes First International as not your friendly neighborhood bank. Rather, it was a Texas powerhouse whose principles reached well beyond banking into the netherworld of intelligence and intrigue. It had particularly close ties to Saudi interests, which were heavily investing in Houston real estate and industry at the time. This was a result of Texas oil interests gaining traction in the Middle East and the Gulf states. First International Bank shares reportedly held a revolving line of credit for Salem bin Laden. And multiple sources have associated it with the Bank of Credit and Commerce International (BCCI). Another intriguing figure, Joe L. Albritton, the long-standing chairman of Washington D.C.'s Riggs Bank, also served as director of First International. According to the Wall Street Journal, Riggs Bank maintained a long-standing relationship with the Central Intelligence Agency and held accounts for several notorious figures. One such figure being Prince Bandar bin Sultan, the Saudi ambassador to the United States from 1983 to 2005, who later appeared in Jeffrey Epstein's contact book. In 2005, Riggs Bank pleaded guilty to money laundering charges following an extensive Justice Department investigation into the bank's activities. Alongside H.W. Bush and Joe Albritton on the board of First International Bank was John Murchison of the wealthy Murchison Oil Family. John Murchison was a lesser known than his relatives Clint Murchison Sr. and Jr., but His oil and gas holdings and other business ventures were no less prolific. In 1982, John's son, John Murchison Jr., was appointed to the board of Gulf Resources and Chemical Corporation. This appointment came after the company was acquired by a shady British businessman turned tax exile in Switzerland, Alan Clore. First International also appears to have had strong connections with Ling Temco Vought, LTV, a major Dallas based defense contractor that supplied the U.S. military with various products, including light attack aircraft during the Vietnam War. John Murchison was listed among the directors of LTV, along with independent oil man. Edwin L. Cox, who also sat on the board of First International. In 1970, LTV's board was overseen by prominent Texas businessman Robert H. Stewart III. Two years later, Stewart would organize First International as a holding company for First National Bank and sat as the institution's long-serving chairman. Much like Walter Mischer, Robert Stewart was incredibly connected within political and business circles. When he took over the LTV board in 1970, the New York Times noted that Senator John Tower was a very good friend of his. The article also quoted Stewart as saying, I've always been on the conservative side of politics. Some people refer to me as being a little to the right of Louis XIV. Robert Stewart held positions on the boards of numerous major corporations, including a long-term directorship at Pepsi from 1965 through at least 1995. During the 1960s and 1970s, he was affiliated with Brunif Airways which was a subsidiary of LTV for a time. In the 1980s, Walter Mischer also served on the board of Braniff Airways. One more crucial corporate connection for Robert Stewart was his role at Arco, formerly known as Atlantic Richfield, in the 1980s. Arco was the petroleum company of Robert O. Anderson a close associate of the Rockefeller family who spent time at the Council on Foreign Relations at the same time as George H.W. Bush. The precise relationship between Robert Anderson and H.W. Bush is not entirely clear, but one interesting link involves Atlantic Richfield's role in the development of the extensive Trans-Alaskan Pipeline System. The aviation services for Anderson's companies were provided by Neil Burt's companies, which included Interior Airways and later Alaska International. In 1974, George W. Bush, H. W. son, and the future 43rd president traveled to Fairbanks, Alaska and took a job working for Neil Burt. When journalist Russ Baker asked Burt how exactly W. Bush came to work for him, Bert said it was a favor to someone from a Houston construction firm. This connection becomes even more intriguing when considering Bert's claims that Alaska International got involved in intelligence operations following the election of President Jimmy Carter. This was happening around the same time H.W. Bush was allegedly establishing his own intelligence network. According to Burt, these were unofficial operations that took place after Jimmy Carter gutted the CIA and almost ruined them. Burt further claimed that his connection to the agency continued into the Reagan administration and that his company had provided support to Southern Air Transport during the Iran-Contra affair. Based on the information available, it's not certain who the individual from the Houston construction firm was, but a potential candidate could be Walter Mischer. No direct evidence linking Mischer and Bush exists as of yet, but they did share mutual association with Robert Anderson. In the early 1950s, Misher began acquiring land near Lajitas, a small town in West Texas close to the U.S.-Mexico border. Robert Anderson followed suit in the 1960s, establishing his Big Bend Ranch in the same area. By the early 1980s, Misher and Anderson joined forces, with Anderson selling half of the ranch's ownership to Misher. The two had plans to syndicate the land and sell shares to selected colleagues in the Texas establishment. During this period, Anderson also maintained a business relationship with Tiny Roland, a member of the Claremont Club who was tied to American and Israeli intelligence services and played a somewhat ambiguous role in the Iran-Contra affair. Anderson had been introduced to Roland by Daniel K. Ludwig, a shadowy billionaire and tanker magnate. In 1983, Anderson sold his ownership of the British newspaper, The Observer, to Tiny Roland. A few years later, Robert Anderson left Arco to focus on his private company, Hondo Oil & Gas. According to the New York Times, this company was equally owned by Mr. Anderson and the British conglomerate Lonroe PLC, a global corporate empire that was overseen by Tiny Rowland. In his revelatory account of the private CIA, Joseph Trento reveals how this ensemble of semi-official intelligence operatives engineered a working relationship with a shadowy apparatus known as the Safari Club. As the Cold War intensified, this club became a forum for leaders of various intelligence agencies allied with the United States. Orchestrators of this club included Kamal Adham, the head of Saudi intelligence, and Turkey bin Fasal al saud his successor and nephew. Alongside them were General Nematollah Nasiri, the commanding head of Iran's Savak, Ahmed Dalimi, the Moroccan Intelligence Director, and Alexander De Marenche who led France's external documentation and counterespionage service. The creation of the Safari Club mirrored the motivations that had driven the formation of Ted Shackley's private CIA. The emerging reformist wave within the US intelligence community and wider political sphere hampered the CIA's once unobstructed operational capabilities It was this operational void that the Safari Club aspired to fill. Turkey Ben Faisal discussed the club and its activities during a speech at Georgetown University, stating, In 1976, after the Watergate matters took place here, your intelligence community was literally tied up by Congress. It could not do anything. It could not send spies. It could not write reports and it could not pay money. In order to compensate for that, a group of countries got together in the hope of fighting communism and established what was called the Safari Club. The Safari Club included France, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Morocco, and Iran. The principal aim of this club was that we would share information with each other, and help each other in countering Soviet influence worldwide, especially in Africa. Iranian journalist Mohammad Haikal elucidates how Ben Fasal's observations reflected the development of vital geopolitical alignments taking shape since the early 1970s. The governments of Saudi Arabia and Iran were pivoting towards Africa as a reservoir of raw materials and new markets. In their strategic view, there was a pressing need to restrain the growing influence of the Soviet Union, which was felt within the numerous anti-colonial movements across the continent. These movements posed a significant threat to the enduring dominance of European powers, especially France, who had vested interest in the African trade of uranium diamonds, and gold. Consequently, a triangular alliance began to materialize. Aside from intelligence, the backbone of the safari club also included economic arrangements that would ultimately transition into a prosperous arms trade. Egypt rapidly became a hub of safari club activities, and its first operation center was located in Cairo. This center was equipped to evaluate what was going on in Africa, identifying the danger spots, and to make recommendations for dealing with them. During the same time, Saudi Arabia was extending substantial financial aid to its Egyptian allies. This aid was subsequently utilized to acquire French-made weaponry, which soon flooded African conflict zones. According to Joseph Trento, given that the Saudis were the financiers, they effectively ran the show. For the safari club to operate efficiently, a banking structure was necessary to manage and direct its financial resources. Their chosen vehicle was the behemoth of dark money and offshore finance. The Bank of Credit and Commerce International, BCCI, While BCCI was ostensibly a Pakistani merchant bank, it also had the backing of the Saudi Intelligence Directorate, which was inextricably linked with the country's ruling elite. Likewise, BCCI sustained branches across Europe and the Middle East. In Cairo, a pivotal city for the Safari Club, the Egyptian branch of the Arab International Bank functioned as a BCCI affiliate. The Arab International Bank would later emerge as a potentially significant footnote in the history of the U.S. savings and loan crisis. This was due to Mario Renda, who served as the bank's treasurer. Renda gained infamy for channeling money from Teamsters Union locals in New York City into numerous thrifts nationwide many of which were deeply tied to organized crime and would ultimately collapse. According to the testimony of Colombo crime family Lieutenant Lawrence Iarizzo, Renda had been handling business for Paul Castellano, the head of the Gambino crime family. Prior to this, Mario Renda developed a business partnership with a familiar character in the world of BCCI arms deals, and covert intelligence networks. Adnan Khashoggi The safari club owed much to Khashoggi. The group's moniker originated from its initial meeting spot, the Mount Kenya Safari Club in Nanyuki, Kenya. Once a favored hangout for past generations of Hollywood, the international jet set and a well-heeled crew, of globe-trotting American mobsters, the hotel and its encompassing acres were acquired by the arms dealer for a modest $900,000 in the mid-1970s. Khashoggi's inaugural actions included enhancing the location's exclusivity. Press reports at the time hinted at his intentions to shutter the resort and use it all for himself this wasn't entirely accurate. It would seem that Khashoggi's scheme was to cater the facility to an even more refined clientele and to transform it into a private rendezvous point for the sort of individuals who navigated the same peculiar netherworld he existed within. However, Adnan Khashoggi was not the first intelligence-affiliated personality involved with the Mount Kenya Safari Club. Most accounts of the club concede its rise to popularity was due to its owners, William Holden, an actor and close ally of Ronald Reagan, as well as Ray Ryan, a professional gambler and entrepreneur with significant connections to hoodlum elements. The pair purchased the properties around 1960. However, a year earlier, they had visited the club accompanied by two interesting figures, Robert Ruerk, whose syndicated newspaper narratives painted him as a globe-trotting adventurer with a penchant for the exotic, and Ruark’s close confidant, Ricardo Secre. According to Rueck, it was he and Secre who had persuaded Holden and Ryan to acquire the safari club. Ricardo Secre had served as a member of the OSS during World War II, operating in the North African and Mediterranean arenas under the guidance of Frank Ryan. Beyond the realm of intelligence, Frank Ryan was a notable businessman engaged in several import-export companies with an emphasis on textiles. Following the war, these entrepreneurial skills proved valuable when veterans of the OSS and British intelligence infrastructure, joined by a number of British merchant banks, Canadian industrialists, and U.S. financiers, established the World Commerce Corporation, WCC. Frank Ryan took on the role of WCC's president, and Ricardo Secre served as vice president. While the WCC largely remains a mystery, its activities have sparked growing interest with a cast of writers and researchers highlighting various facets of the corporation. Most concentrate on the corporation's use as a commercial front for intelligence operations, while others, such as Steven Snyder, have explored the WCC in the context of the special relationship between the U.S. and the U.K. William Donovan's biographer, Anthony Brown, connects the corporation to the revitalization efforts of European industry post-World War II, stating that the OSS veteran was a key driver of the WCC behind the scenes. Meanwhile, Ralph Gaines investigates the ties between the WCC and the development of industrial infrastructure within NATO. At its inception, the WCC supposedly aimed to resolve the dollar shortages that characterized the post-war era. This objective was crucial in shaping an international economic order under the leadership of the U.S. and its European partners, with stakes and interests in industries such as mining oil, natural gas, film, shipping, agriculture, and tourism, the WCC did indeed pursue this goal. Based on this information, Whitney Webb raises the question, was the development of the Safari Club, which was reportedly encouraged by WCC's Vice President, Ricardo Secre, a part of this international dollar recycling endeavor? the idea might not be as implausible as it initially appears. Juan Tripp, the founder of Pan American World Airways, was also the brother-in-law of Edward Stettinius Jr., President Roosevelt's Secretary of State, who also held a seat on the WCC board until his untimely death in 1949. As early As 1945, Roosevelt and Juan Tripp were engaged in discussions concerning the role international tourism and luxury resorts would play in drawing dollars to the developing world. To execute the vision he developed with Roosevelt, Tripp established intercontinental hotels. Decades later, Adnan Khashoggi would enlist intercontinental hotels to manage the Safari Club. A closer examination of Khashoggi's takeover of the Safari Club reveals the tendrils of intelligence involvement. He was introduced to the club by his public relations manager, Edward K. Moss. Moss was a standing member of the Safari Club and was concurrently serving as a consultant for the Kenyan government. Khashoggi had his own ventures in Kenya and was privy to the peculiars of a planned beach resort as well as a World Bank study that projected millions of dollars for the area. These various threads intersected through the safari club. According to Ronald Kessler, Khashoggi's biographer, Khashoggi believed The locale was a Shangri-La of sorts. Edward Moss had ties to the CIA that began as early as 1959. A handwritten memo from that year reveals that he had obtained a covert security approval. In 1962, Moss received clearance for Z.R. Major, a CIA initiative focusing on the exploitation of political consultants. While little is known about the exact purpose of this operation, it was managed by the political action group of the Covert Action Staff, which was supervised by Cord Meyer. Another CIA document claims that Moss acted as an assistant for raising funds against Fidel Castro and for public relations matters for Tony Verona, the leader of the CIA-backed Cuban Revolutionary Council. Tony Verona served as one of the CIA's main assets in their secret war against Castro's Cuba. He was also one of several individuals linked to both the agency and organized crime figures, Santo Traficante and John Roselli. CIA files make it clear that Moss was deeply embedded in the tangled matrix of organized crime and intelligence. The aforementioned handwritten agency memo refers to Moss's long-standing mafia connection, before noting that his operation seems to be government contracts for the underworld and probably surfaces mafia money in legitimate business activities. The Moss file also reports of rumors that mobster Dino Cellini's sister, Giuliana Cellini, was Moss's mistress and ran a secretarial service that was essentially a front for Moss's activities. Moss also funneled money from Dino Cellini to Tony Verona, presenting yet another instance of agency collusion with organized crime. Throughout the 1950s, Dino Cellini was Meyer Lansky's representative in Cuba and assisted in managing several major national crime syndicate casinos, the Riviera Casino and the Tropicana Club. As noted in chapter five, Cellini's activities brought him into close contact with Charlie the Blade Torrin and DC mob boss Joe Neslin. Peter Del Scott suggests that this interconnection hints at human trafficking and the utilization of sex as a tool for political influence. FBI files report the Cellini siblings were involved in both narcotics trade and white slavery rackets. Scott further proposes that this FBI report suggests an important shared interest between Moss and Khashoggi sexual corruption. Incredibly, the source of the information linking Moss to organized crime was none other than Edwin Wilson. According to a CIA internal memo drafted in 1973, Wilson stated that he had met Moss in 1966 through Washington representative of the Transport Workers Union, Frank O'Connell The memorandum also suggests that one of Wilson's business associates, Richard S. Cobb, was also having business contacts with Moss. One can't help but wonder whether 1966 truly marked the initial interaction between Edwin Wilson and Edward Moss. As previously noted, Wilson's early stint at the agency included an extended tenure with the AFL-CIO where he operated under the auspices of the International Operations Division, which was managed by Cord Meyer. In March 1962, the International Operations Division merged with the Covert Action Staff and Cord Meyer retained direct supervision. As discussed, the Covert Action Staff under Meyer Was the CIA division that supervised ZR Major, the operation for which Edward Moss had clearance? Based on this information, it is entirely plausible that Wilson and Moss crossed paths during this time period. Further speculation regarding an earlier connection between the two can be seen in JM Wave, the Miami station overseeing the Cuban exile operations to which Moss was also linked. Wilson's closest CIA contacts, Ted Shackley and Thomas Kleins, spent a significant amount of time at this location, and it's possible they came into contact with Edward Moss there. This entire network was buried in shadows. Ted Shackley, through his own connections, tied the safari club to potent domestic forces opposed to President Jimmy Carter and, according to Joseph Trento, Carter was never fully briefed about the safari club. This lack of information is striking considering the evidence of corruption within Carter's own administration. Prominent officials under Carter, such as Clark Clifford, played significant roles in facilitating the penetration of BCCI into the U.S. banking system. By 1980, elements connected through the Safari Club and Shackley's private CIA were mounting an international campaign against President Carter, laying the groundwork for the rise of Ronald Reagan as president. Critical to these endeavors was Le Circle a quasi-formal group composed of representatives from conservative military, intelligence, and business circles within NATO countries. From its inception in the 1950s, the group was meticulously cultivated by assets within U.S., British, and French intelligence agencies in tandem with German and Italian industrial magnates. In June 1980, Les circle convened in Zurich. A major topic during the meeting was the upcoming elections in America. The meeting's minutes alluded to the shattered remains of Carter's foreign policy and a subsequent discussion about a series of appropriate measures to promote the electoral campaign of presidential candidate Ronald Reagan. Among those in attendance was Donald Jameson an old CIA hand who retired from the agency to take a job at Tetra Tech, a contractor with significant interest in the Middle East. Authorities suspected Tetra Tech was connected to BCCI and had been founded by another CIA veteran, James Critchfield. Donald Jameson and James Critchfield were both close to Ted Shackley, and were also associated with Research Associates International, a key node in the private CIA. Several days after this meeting, another member of Les Circle, Brian Crozier, who coincidentally worked under Cord Meyer in the Covert Action Staff, had a personal meeting with Ronald Reagan in Los Angeles. Shortly after, Safari Club member, and Chief of French Intelligence, Alexander Demarenche, met with Reagan's new campaign manager, William Casey, in Paris. According to David Teacher's in-depth study of Le Circle, these meetings happened roughly a month before the alleged October surprise meetings in Madrid, where it is suggested that representatives from Reagan's campaign conspired with Iran to delay the release of hostages until after the 1980 election. Supposedly, this was done in an attempt to sway the outcome of the election. William Casey hawkishly led the Central Intelligence Agency and left a legacy mired in controversy. Under his supervision, the Iran-Contra Affair a deceptive term designed to veil the Reagan administration's global ambitions for covert warfare, flourished. At the time of his death in May 1987, the scandal was on full display and his colleagues, subordinates, and representatives were summoned to testify. Casey's early education began under the Jesuits at Fordham University in New York City this sparked a lifelong distaste for any hints of socialism and also a profound admiration for the knights of malta a group he belonged to according to leo churn who later headed the cia-funded international rescue committee bill from the beginning was to the right of attila the hun he was a quintessential cold warrior as early as the 1930s to understand this, you had to understand his Catholicism. Leo Chern and William Casey first crossed paths at the Research Institute of America, a collective venture centered on economic analysis and publishing. While the Research Institute of America aimed for non-partisanship, Casey held deep personal opposition towards FDR's New Deal. In his eyes, the policies reeked of socialism and constricted the free functioning of the private sector. Casey's political leanings and analytical skills opened doors amongst New York's political circles, and he eventually landed a consultancy role at the Board of Economic Warfare in September 1942. This board was one of the many intricate wartime agencies established to navigate the logistical challenges presented by a worldwide war effort. Casey found the position dull and soon joined the Navy where he was assigned to the Office of Naval Procurement, virtually conducting the same tasks he had at the Board of Economic Warfare. It was around this time that whispers of the Office of Strategic Service under the direction of William Donovan reached his ears. As luck would have it, Jerry Doran, a former law partner of Casey's, was associated with Donovan's law firm. Doran arranged a sit-down with Otto Doring, Donovan's right-hand man at the OSS and a senior partner at Donovan's law firm. Soon after this meeting, Casey found himself in London, the hub of all OSS operations in Europe, which was overseen by David Bruce. Much has been discussed regarding the intimate ties between the OSS and the unofficial American aristocracy comprised of influential families such as the Mellons, Harrimans, DuPonts, and Morgans. David Bruce found himself amongst these circles after he married Elsa Mellon, a member of the powerful Pittsburgh dynasty. Elsa's brother Paul Mellon had also served in London under Bruce's leadership. Despite David Bruce and Elsa Mellon's divorce in 1945, Bruce maintained ties with the Mellon clan. During his tenure as a U.S. ambassador to the United Kingdom, he was associated with one of the family's younger heirs, William Mellon Hitchcock. As we discussed in Episode 4, Bruce and Mellon Hitchcock would later be implicated in the Profumo affair. At first, William Casey was simply another face in the crowd, a member of the Secretariat whose responsibilities were limited to drafting reports for the top brass. However, due to Casey's experience in navigating bureaucracy, or possibly his economic ambitions, he managed to forge a close personal relationship with David Bruce. This relationship played a crucial role in elevating Casey beyond the lower rungs of the OSS, paving the way to his future role as the director of the CIA. Under Bruce's patronage, Casey ascended to the intelligence apparatus's nerve center, an elite social network that held the reins of power within the service. Casey was soon entrusted with the role of Chief of the OSS Secretariat in the European Theater of Operations. He had become Donovan's troubleshooter on the European front. Another individual deeply embedded in OSS operations at the London station was J. Russell Forgan, who would later take over Bruce's post. Russell Forgan held from the high finance circles of Chicago. His father, David Forgan, and his uncle, James Forgan, held presidencies at the First National Bank of Chicago. This bank boasted a wide array of investors, including the Morgan and Harriman families as well as James Stillman, a close confidant of the Rockefeller dynasty. James Forgan had also served on the first board of the Federal Reserve. Russell Forgan followed his familial legacy and immersed himself in the Chicago banking world. In the mid-1940s, as World War II was drawing to a close, Russell Forgan and William Casey found themselves assigned to a radically different line of duty. As Casey biographer Joseph Persico notes, General Donovan summoned his senior staff and told them that this war had forever ended the isolation of the United States. He directed an OSS colonel, J. Russell Forgan, to head up a committee, as he put it, to study the need for our country to establish on a permanent basis, as an integral part of the military, a strategic intelligence agency. Bill Casey was to serve as the committee's secretary. The assignment was to bring Casey in at the creation of what would ultimately metamorph into the central intelligence agency. As he would tell his staff at Langley 37 years later, I was there in the beginning. Nobody saw me, but I was there. Post-war, Casey remained entrenched in the realms of intelligence, military, and military and defense. He co-founded a national security think tank named the National Strategy Information Center in 1962. NSIC was essentially an offshoot of the National Security Council's propaganda arm named the Institute for American Strategy. This connection is reinforced by NSIC's co-founder Frank Barnett who had previously served as Program Director for the Institute for American Strategy. Over the years and during Casey's tenure as CIA Director, the NSIC maintained a presence in intelligence circles. It assembled a roster of familiar faces on its board of directors, including Admiral Thomas Moore. Moreover. NSIC's seminars on special operations and Cold War geopolitical maneuvers attracted attendees such as Ted Shackley and Oliver North. Outside of his roles in Cold War propaganda institutions and legal practice, Casey devoted his energies to carving out a political future. He established himself within the faction of the Republican Party that was at odds with the centrist views of Nelson and David Rockefeller. His ideological leanings inclined towards fiscal conservatism and a fierce opposition to communism, echoing the sentiments of William F. Buckley, a close associate of Roy Cohn. Casey even ghostwrote a National Review essay that was critical of future Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. As Buckley later noted, the thrust of Bill's article was that Rockefeller aimed to steer New York State and, subsequently, America away from anti communism and towards collectivism. Casey found his political anchor with Richard Nixon. In Nixon, he identified a figure who stood apart from Eastern establishment cultural spheres that cultivated politicians such as Nelson Rockefeller. Moreover, Nixon was a fervent Cold War advocate and a champion of business. Casey informally assisted Nixon's unsuccessful campaign against John F. Kennedy. Although this effort bore no fruit, Casey remained committed to bolstering Nixon's cause throughout the 1960s, rejecting proposals to work for the campaigns of Barry Goldwater and others. As Nixon made his resurgency towards the end of the 1960s, Casey saw his chance. He funneled money into Nixon's campaign and orchestrated a book titled Nixon on the Issues. He anticipated that his efforts would be rewarded with a significant role inside the Nixon administration. But that long-awaited offer never materialized. Instead, Casey found himself reaching out to intermediaries to help secure a position. Among these was his former OSS associate, J. Russell Forgan, who had close ties with Maurice Stans. Nixon's financial manager and eventual head of the Committee for the reelection of the President. Between 1965 and 1969, Stan served as the president of Glor Forgan, a distinguished New York investment firm partially managed by Russell Forgan. Casey's aspiration was clear and resonated with his established geopolitical credentials he desired a top-tier position in the military hierarchy, the State Department, or the CIA. When Nixon finally extended an offer, it was for the role of Deputy Director of the CIA, under Director Richard Helms. Casey declined the offer. According to Joseph Persico, the offer was borderline insulting, as Dick Helms had worked for Casey more than 25 years ago. He had been a junior officer in London when Casey was U.S. intelligence chief for all of Europe. In 1971, he reluctantly accepted a subsequent offer and assumed leadership of the Nixon Administration's Security and Exchange Commission, SEC. He remained in this role for two years before serving in a sequence of other positions, including Undersecretary of State for Economic Affairs, where he found himself at odds with Henry Kissinger, Chairman of the Import-Export Bank, and as a member of the Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board. However, it's worth taking a moment to dive into Casey's tenure at the SEC as it was here that he crossed paths with the notorious financial rogue Robert Vesco. Robert Vesco, dubbed the Detroit Kid, is a legend in the world of white-collar crime, famous for his dramatic ascent and subsequent downfall. This trajectory forced him to live as a globe-trotting fugitive with a considerable fortune. He was known to comfortably navigate alliances with right-wing militants, Colombian drug lords, and Cuban communists. Mitchell Werbel III, an ex-OSS operative who later became a hired gun and arms dealer, suspected Vesco was a CIA asset, while Jim Hogan describes him as Watergate's own Rosetta Stone. Vesco's meteoric rise was fueled by his acquisition and subsequent draining of an international mutual fund that was, at the very least, adjacent to organized crime and the CIA. When this failed to satisfy his ambitions, he set his sights on controlling Resorts International, the infamous hotel and casino on Paradise Island with deep ties to the very same criminal and intelligence networks. The initial object of Vesco's takeover was Investors Overseas Services, IOS. The creation of hippie entrepreneur, Banai Barith Advocate, and self-declared Trotskyite, Bernie Kornfeld. On the surface, IOS peddled mutual funds with salespeople trekking across Europe and beyond. Humble beginnings for an entity that would become a global behemoth. According to Jim Hogan, even before Vesco's advent on the scene, iOS bordered on the bazaar. It was an underground institution. R.T. Naylor, a scholar in offshore finance, offers his own encapsulation of iOS, stating, If Bernie Kornfeld did not invent the modern technology of capital flight, he did far more than his contemporaries to put it to work in an imaginative, systematic, and profitable way. Naylor also highlights the fact that the early success of IOS was made possible by US-led economic strategies. On one side. The U.S. dollar's role as a reserve currency had sparked the emergence of euro-dollar markets and the necessity for dollar recycling, roles which IOS seamlessly filled. On the other side, the United Nations International Monetary Fund was urging developing nations to liberalize capital flow controls. and. The ensuing capital flight frequently ended up funneled into investments in the United States and Europe. The IMF's policies often ignited business growth, although not necessarily in the countries they purported to aid, and Kornfeld skillfully leveraged these for his own benefit, transforming IOS and its mutual funds network into a magnet for the now accessible capital. IOS representatives and couriers flocked to developing countries, navigated conflict zones, and courted dictators, offering investment prospects and access to bank accounts in locales such as Luxembourg, Geneva, and the Bahamas. While managing this rapidly swelling pool of dirty money Bernie Kornfeld and IOS fostered a close working relationship with Tibor Rosenbaum. As was discussed in Episode 3, Rosenbaum's Geneva-based International Credit Bank was a preferred destination for funds from mobster Meyer Lansky and Israel's Mossad. Rosenbaum even claimed to be the one who introduced Kornfeld to the advantages of mutual funds. This relationship resulted in the creation of International Investment Trust, the first major IOS financial entity that was founded in 1962. Tibor Rosenbaum was not the only Mossad-linked figure Kornfeld associated himself with, he was also close with Bruce Rapaport, the banker, oil tanker tycoon, and financial criminal who was also a close personal friend of William Casey. According to criminologist Alan Block, Bruce Rapaport had even bailed Kornfeld out of a Swiss jail at some point. IOS was suspected of being backed by Bank von Emden which held stake in Rappaport's own financial establishment, the Intermaritime Bank. Additionally, Alan Block writes, In October 1970, British bankers discerned that Bank von Emden was either a subsidiary or an affiliate of the French Bank of West Africa, which was owned by James Goldsmith. James Goldsmith was a member of the Claremont Club, a corporate raider and character who frequently resurfaces in the networks surrounding Robert Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. At the same time IOS was rapidly expanding, an unrelated American corporation, the International Controls Corporation ICC, was orchestrating a series of rapid acquisitions. Sitting at the helm of ICC was Robert Vesco. Vesco's signature strategy involved borrowing funds to facilitate takeovers, then utilizing the seized company's assets to repay the loans. This maneuver ensured an excellent credit score, and through a few strategic steps, Vesco soon began offering shares of his newfound empire on the stock exchange. Vesco had targeted struggling medium-sized industrial firms for his initial acquisitions. One of his earliest endeavors involved Captive Seal, a missile component manufacturer. Although the company was struggling, Vesco revived it by courting investment from a capital firm known as HH Industries, which was co-owned by Baron Edmond de Rothschild. Adding another layer to these connections, Edmond de Rothschild had also orchestrated the formation of the Israel Corporation, Israel's most substantial investment company in partnership with Tibor Rosenbaum. It appears that the Rothschild connection is what brought IOS to Vesco's attention between 1967 and 1968. According to Arthur Herzog, Vesco's biographer, Edmond de Rothschild had boasted to the freshly appointed president of the International Investment Trust, Henry Buell III, about the triumphs of captive SEAL. Soon after, George Carl Weiss, an agent of Edmond de Rothschild's Banque privee arranged an introduction between Vesco and Buell. From that point forward, IOS began acquiring International Controls Corporation shares at Buell's discretion, catapulting Vesco's career. In the early 1970s, IOS commanded an astronomical amount of money but appeared to struggle with liquidity issues. The Detroit kid seized the opportunity to make his move. In exchange for significant control over the company, he offered to bail out IOS. According to Jim Hogan, the takeover of IOS was a masterpiece of unarmed robbery. A newly formed Bahamanian subsidiary of International Controls ICC Investments Incorporated became the lender to IOS Vesco arranged for ICC Investments to borrow 5 million from a Wall Street brokerage house promising repayment in 6 weeks He then persuaded the owner of Butler's Bank in the Bahamas which was also under a liquidity strain to lend ICC Investments $5 million to repay the six-week loan. From this point, Vesco structured the loan agreement to IOS to alleviate the liquidity squeeze, deducting $350,000 to cover the financing cost of the Wall Street brokerage. With the remaining funds, Vesco assumed control of IOS and directed the company to repay the loan taken from Butler's Bank. In other words, Vesco had used the organization's own funds to engineer the takeover. He then systematically purged the board of Bernie Kornfeld's Old Guard, effectively establishing control over one of the world's largest offshore financial institutions. Finally. Through a complex network of shell companies and fronts, which were set up using IOS money, Vesco began to liquidate IOS assets, call-in debts, and simply pocket hefty sums of money. The looting of IOS drew the attention of Stanley Sporkin, the head of the Security and Exchange Commission's Enforcement Division. According to Sporkin, the resulting SEC investigation was a commendable initiative and had received the green light directly from his superior, William Casey. The SEC started freezing Vesco's overseas accounts, aiming to stem the massive amounts of money flowing out of iOS and, consequently, the wallets of those who had invested in iOS mutual funds. However, these efforts were short-lived. In an attempt to curry political favor and thwart the SEC's investigation, Vesco arranged for a donation of $250,000 to Richard Nixon's committee for the re-election of the president. According to author Robert Hutchison, a portion of this money had been used to finance the Watergate break-ins. However, in January 1973, the committee returned the contribution in full, stating that in light of Vesco's charges and the looting of IOS, this was in both parties' best interest. Questions have arisen regarding William Casey's impartiality to IOS, largely due to his involvement with an obscure company named Multiponics which he had been associated with since 1968. This company, which seemed to persistently shadow and trouble Casey throughout his career, was ostensibly organized to engage in farming operations, agribusiness, and the acquisition of land. However, three years after its inception, Multiponics declared bankruptcy leaving traces of suspicious activities in its wake. For instance, the company had acquired the mortgage debts of all of its organizers, including William Casey. Investors in multiponics were never informed of this aspect of the company's operations, and their investments unwittingly went towards paying off these mortgages. Additionally, Glor Forgan The firm of Casey's old OSS colleague, J. Russell Forgan, assisted in organizing the company's stock offering, and Lawrence F. Orb, an advisor in the Corporate Finance Department of Glor Forgan, held a position on the Multiponics Board. Intriguingly, the main investor in multiponics had been International Investment Trust, the leading mutual fund of IOS. This implies that William Casey, the head of the SEC and the individual directly overseeing the investigation of Robert Vesco, had business interests that were deeply interwoven with Vesco's own affairs. There is little doubt that Vesco was aware of Casey's compromised situation. It later emerged that while Vesco was seeking a discreet channel to William Casey, he was also preparing potential legal actions against him. According to Vesco, the purpose of multiponics had been to take over the personal interests of Mr. Casey and others in certain farming operations at values subsequently determined to be inflated. Vesco, in other words, was accusing Casey, Glor Forgan, and their multiponics associates of defrauding IOS. In February 1973, Vesco departed from the U.S. for Costa Rica and other Caribbean and Latin American countries. The same month William Casey stepped down as the head of the SEC. While no evidence links these two events. A grand jury later found evidence that William Casey and his SEC successor, Bradford Cook, had directly interfered with the SEC's probe into Robert Vesco and IOS. Years later, a U.S. customs contract agent named Joe Kelso arrived in Costa Rica on the hunt for a runaway drug dealer. Although he didn't find his target, Kelso did come across Robert Besco's private jet, hidden in a hangar bay that was paid for by a shrimp company known as Frigorificos de Ponterenas. According to a CIA Inspector General's report, Frigorificos was among the companies that were used by the Department of State in the mid 1980s to channel humanitarian aid to Nicaraguan Contras. The report also acknowledged that, as per DEA reports, the company and its operators, Frank Chanez and Moises Nunez, a narcotics officer in the government of Costa Rica, were connected to international cocaine trafficking and money laundering. The Kerry Committee report further named Raymond Milian Rodriguez, a money launderer linked to the Colombian cartels, and Luis Rodriguez, a convicted narcotics trafficker, as other key players in frigoríficos. The fact that Robert Vesco was found in close proximity to Colombian narcotics traffickers isn't surprising. In the early 1980s, drug trafficker George Young testified that Carlos Lader, a top-tier trafficker from the Medellin drug cartel, had collaborated with Robert Vesco in moving cocaine throughout the Bahamas. Carlos Lader later verified Young's claim. When he was called to testify in the 1991 trial against Manuel Noriega, Lader identified Robert Vesco as one of his partners in the Bahamas dating back to the early 1980s. At this point, we're going to shift our focus to Billy Gate. Billy Gate was named for President Jimmy Carter's brother, Billy Carter, and focused on the ties he had cultivated with the government of Libya. The scandal was the subject of a Senate Congressional hearing and occurred during a period of mass upheaval within the Democratic Party. A Christian Science Monitor article from the summer of 1980 discusses this rising anti-Carter bloc and reads: Washington reporters are hearing from Democrat leaders in office or out, and usually in private, who say they would really prefer to have Carter step aside or be forced to step aside. This growing anxiety, call it fear, one congressman says is that the president will not only lose badly but will bring about the defeat of a lot of democrats in marginal seats and possibly elect a gop controlled house and senate billy gate emerged amid escalating tensions between the united states and libya and was at least in part due to the libyan government's attempts to influence american public opinion and, by extension, sway U.S. policy. Ahmad al-Shahadi, the head of the Libyan Foreign Liaison Office, spearheaded a program designed to invite prominent U.S. citizens and business organizations to Libya. In March 1978, these efforts focused on involving Billy Carter in the program. The linkage between the Libyans and Billy was rather tenuous. According to a 1980 Senate report titled Inquiry into the Matter of Billy Carter and Libya, Michel Papa, a Sicilian attorney and founder of the Sicilian Arab Association, informed Atlanta-based realtor Mario Leonza. That significant financial gain was available if Billy Carter could be persuaded to visit Libya. Through a network of mutual associates, arrangements were made to establish contact between Billy and the Libyan ambassador to Italy, Jibril Shalouf. Mario Leonza was indeed compensated for his efforts. Billy Carter visited Libya for the first time in late 1978. Following this trip, Billy helped arrange a Libyan delegation's visit to Georgia in early 1979, where he acted as a goodwill ambassador and championed the formation of a Libyan-Arab-Georgian Friendship Society. Plans for a commodity exchange program were also developed, with Libyans set to purchase Georgian-produced goods, while Billy would leverage his contacts to assist Libya in selling its own primary commodities, such as oil, in the open market. To facilitate these plans, the Carter Administration's Director of the Office of Budget and Management, Bert Lance, suggested enlisting a knowledgeable London banker. However, Lance later disclosed to investigators that his recommendation had not been for a banker, but instead for BCCI. The presence of BCCI implies a greater degree of subterfuge occurring behind the scenes. Joseph Trento in Prelude to Terror, concurs with this perspective. According to his sources within the intelligence community, Israeli intelligence sought to exploit the President through his brother, Billy. To accomplish this, the task was outsourced to the private CIA. Thomas Kleins then began orchestrating efforts to persuade the Libyans that Billy Carter should be enlisted as their goodwill ambassador, a move that would considerably damage President Carter's image and prove advantageous for the Republicans in 1980. The unfolding of events surrounding the Billy Carter-Libya relationship was characterized by a thick haze of clandestine business transactions political maneuvers, and dubious tactics. A useful lens to start unraveling this intricate web lies in the Florida holding of the influential DuPont family, which had become involved with the CIA's aviation complex in the 1970s and 1980s. Overseeing the family's Florida interests was Alfred I. DuPont, who began operating in the state in 1926. His early Florida endeavors primarily involved real estate investments, which eventually morphed into an expansive empire that was managed by the Alfred I. DuPont Testamentary Trust. At the helm of this vast financial network was Alfred's brother-in-law and distinguished financier, Edward Ball. When Alfred died in 1935, the trust fell into his wife's possession, and she subsequently handed over control to her brother, Ed Ball. According to Florida Senator Claude Pepper, thanks to Alfred DuPont's accumulation of different holdings and assets, Ed Ball controlled a great machine which he operates and manipulates Every string which controls this vast empire runs through the fingers of Mr. Edward Ball. Aside from real estate holdings, railways, shipping companies, and heavy industries, the principal epicenter of Ball's influence and power lay in his command over the state's banking system. The genesis of this power can be traced back to the 1930s, when the DuPonts seized control of Florida National Banks, which had served as conduits for the acquisition of struggling lending institutions across the state. In time, DuPont held and Ball managed an expansive banking network boasting an estimated $530 million in deposits. It's also possible that the DuPont Ball Bank intertwined with the interests of OSS veteran Paul Helliwell. According to a 1964 U.S. government probe into DuPont and Ball, which was part of a broader investigation into holding company practices, the roster of Florida National Group Banks included Hellywell's Bank of Perine Cutler Ridge as part of this umbrella group. Also included was Miami National Bank, a Hellywell represented bank that was established with aid from the Teamsters Pension Fund. By the late 1960s, Ed Ball's hold over Florida had started to incite the wrath of government regulators and politicians, and steps were taken to force the DuPont Trust to divest a substantial portion of its holdings. As a result, Ball sought assistance from his friend Raymond Mason. Raymond Mason soon acquired some of Ball's real estate, and a proposal was floated wherein Charter Company A vast oil and real estate firm, which Mason was the CEO of, would assume control of the profitable St. Joe Paper Company, a crown jewel among the DuPont Ball Holdings. The stumbling block was that Charter, at this juncture, was a considerably smaller enterprise and lacked the capital necessary to sustain St. Joe. A potential resolution surfaced in the form of a proposed takeover of Charter by Occidental Petroleum, an oil firm helmed by businessman Armand Hammer, who also sat on the board of Ball's Florida National Bank of Jacksonville. While the Occidental takeover of Charter failed to materialize, it by no means severed the relationship between the two companies. Nevertheless, the botched acquisition also spelled doom for Charter's planned purchase of St. Joe. At this stage, Ball had partially divested the DuPont Trust from Florida national banks and had stepped down as chairman. However, the trust still maintained a dominant position and Ball assumed a new role as the bank's controlling coordinator. In order to navigate these setbacks, Charter and St. Joe exchanged stock in 1972, with Raymond Mason ending up controlling 8% of St. Joe and Ball holding sway over 22% of Charter. The same year as the stock swap, Mason and Ball toyed with the idea of purchasing IOS. However, Just as with the Occidental Petroleum Affair, this buyout never took place, but just as with Armand Hammer, Mason and Ball maintained close ties to Robert Vesco. After becoming an international fugitive, Vesco cozied up to Gaddafi's government in Libya, which subsequently became an important source of crude oil for Charter Company. Interestingly, Armand Hammer was also a player in the world of Libyan oil. According to Edward J. Epstein's book, Dossier, Hammer managed in the 1960s to obtain a huge concession for Occidental in Libya by paying a multi-million dollar bribe to a key official in the Libyan court. It was one of the few concessions in the Middle East not controlled by major international oil companies, and Hammer made a fortune that he then used to finance immense barter deals with the Soviet Union. He also used his Libyan oil to undermine the power of established oil companies, and in doing so he radically changed the rules of the international oil business. The manner in which Charter Company became entangled in the complex realm of Libyan oil affairs is central to understanding the Billy Gates scandal. It also serves as a potential connection to the broader network of rogue operations and private intelligence networks that we've been discussing in this episode. The linchpin here is a company named Carey Energy, which was headed by Edward Carey, the brother of New York Governor Hugh Carey and the mob affiliated petroleum dealer Martin Carey. According to author Alan Block, Edward Carey and his oil business were extraordinarily close to the Coolucundus, the Greek shipping dynasty and its patriarch, Elias J. Kulakundis. As detailed in Chapter 3, the interests of the Kulakundis family were intertwined with those of Bruce Rappaport, while the dynasty's in-laws, the Mavrolians, were later associated with Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. At the time, Elias Kulakundis was overseeing the Burma Oil Tankers Corporation, a subsidiary of Burma Oil from which British Petroleum originated. Via Burma Oil Tankers, the Kulakundas family maintained a foothold near the Nucleus of Power in the Bahamas. Burma Oil and the Bahamas Development Corporation jointly owned an oil transport facility located in Freeport on Grand Bahama, and the family also kept an apartment in New York for Bahamian government officials. Kerry Energy also maintained a presence in the Bahamas. The company held a majority stake in a Freeport-based oil refinery known as Borco. This facility processed crude oil from Libya and Iran and would have had direct ties to the transport terminal managed by Elias Kulakundas. At some point, Kerry Energy upset the Libyan government after one of its subsidiaries defaulted on payments to the nation's state-owned oil company. Facing potential bankruptcy, Kerry began scouting for a buyer for his company, and Charter Oil Company took notice. How Carey Energy and Charter first connected is vague at best. Via Edward Carey's family ties, the energy company was plugged into New York politics. Additionally, the company's executive vice president, Jack McGregor, maintained connections with Billy Carter and the Carter family and had served as Billy's supervisor in the Marine Corps during the 1950s. According to government documents related to the Billy Gates scandal, Jack McGregor served as an informal advisor to Billy Carter during the period he was embarking on his own business ventures in Libya. Lastly, through its operations in Libya, Kerry Energy likely brushed up against the interests of Armand Hammer and Robert Vesco both of whom had dealings with Charter Oil. For a price, Robert Vesco extended his services to Charter Oil and used his sway with the Libyans to put pressure on Kerry during the ongoing negotiations. In a statement to Congressional Investigators, J. Stephen Wilson, Charter Oil's Chief Financial Officer, said that Vesco had reached out to Raymond Mason about a potential charter acquisition of three former International Overseas Services subsidiaries that were undergoing liquidation. In June 1978, Wilson and other charter executives journeyed to the Bahamas to meet with Vesco. Wilson traveled to the Bahamas again in September 1978 this time accompanied by Raymond Mason. The pair visited once more in January 1979, this time with the objective of working on Charter's acquisition of Borco. As Wilson tells the story, there was never any intention to conduct business with Robert Vesco due to the financier's precarious legal status. However, these meetings between Charter and Vesco did occur, and during at least one, the Borco acquisition was discussed, albeit in generalities, according to Wilson. In March 1979, shortly after Charter took over Carey Energy, Vesco began reaching out to Raymond Mason, claiming he had played a crucial role in the acquisition and was entitled to a $5 million finder's fee. Charter argued they never sought out Vesco's help and thus were not obligated to pay any such fee. While the government accepted Charter's denial, contrary accusations continued to arise. These allegations were intensified when Billy Carter's friend, Jack McGregor, joined Charter oil shortly after the purchase of Cary Energy. Following this, in August 1979, Billy Carter signed an agreement with Charter to assist the company in securing additional Libyan oil supplies, which, he stated, would not be hampered should Libya embargo oil to the U.S. Additionally, according to an intriguing footnote, In the Billy Gate Senate report, allegations in the press stated that Billy Carter's oil deal with Charter Oil was engineered by Robert Vesco as part of a larger scheme to influence the U.S. government to deliver planes to Libya. The planes in question were Boeing jumbo jets, C-130s, and Lockheed L-100 cargo transport aircraft which Libya had ordered from American manufacturers. The export of these aircraft was being impeded by a ban imposed by the Carter Administration's State Department in the fall of 1978. Robert Vesco imposed himself into this situation, instigating a sequence of plots and counterplots that posed significant difficulties for the Carter administration between 1979 and 1980. Vesco told co-conspirator James W. Brewer, if the State Department would release the airplanes, then the people in Washington can get paid $7.5 million out of the airplane deal and I can get paid $7.5 million. James Brewer had intermittently served as special assistant to familiar figure, Shern Moody, Jr. During the time, Shern was running American National Insurance Company. This relationship was another example of the Moody family's tendency to associate with figures linked to organized crime. Brewer had longstanding associations with criminal networks and was a repeat offender in fraud schemes. In 1978, Brewer was indicated in relation to mail fraud and, in order to escape prosecution, he agreed to become an FBI informant. According to a Senate report concerning an undercover investigation into Robert Vesco, Brewer assisted the FBI's Miami office in uncovering offshore banking scandals involving fake or improperly used cashier's checks, letters of credit, or securities. He provided opportunities to individuals, presumably targets predisposed to commit crimes, and reported their conduct to the FBI. James Jimmy Day, a former Texas State Representative who later lobbied for American National Insurance Company, was one such target. Jimmy Day cultivated deep ties to organized crime. For instance, Leonard Capaldi, who law enforcement alleged represented the interests of several Midwestern and Eastern mob families in Houston, Texas, was a business partner of his. In the early 1980s, Capaldi reappeared as a major borrower at Houston's Mainland Savings, where, as will be discussed in the next chapter, figures like Adnan Khashoggi and others connected to intelligence operations were present. Jimmy Day had cultivated deep contacts within the Carter administration, and in April 1978, He informed James Brewer that White House Chief of Staff Hamilton Jordan and DNC Chairman John C. White were not too confident about Carter's re-election and were interested in lucrative deals. The ensuing events are interesting, albeit muddled. James Brewer claims that Jimmy Day requested he contact Robert Vesco to arrange something for Jordan and White. Day, on the other hand, insists that the idea to involve Vesco came directly from Brewer. In any case, James Brewer, Jimmy Day, and another American National Insurance Company aide, named James Wollenhaus, traveled to the Bahamas for a personal meeting with Robert Vesco. This was the first of several trips the group would make, with the issue of the embargoed planes becoming an increasingly important focal point. Jimmy Day brought the issue to DNC Chairman John White's attention, and immediately after an October trip to the Bahamas, the State Department released a handful of planes to the Libyan government. The FBI was closely observing as these events unfolded. Following the release of the planes, Robert Vesco informed Jimmy Day that he could not pay him his cut, as the Libyans had not paid him yet. Day suspected that Vesco was lying. At this point, Day wanted to withdraw from the affair, but James Brewer, possibly at the behest of the FBI, kept Day involved by arranging for one of his associates, a man named James Feeney to pay Day the money he was owed in exchange for a share of future profits from dealings with the Libyans, Vesco, and Carter administration officials. Remarkably, Jimmy Day knew that James Brewer was an FBI informant. However, what neither Brewer nor Day knew was that James Feeney was soon to become an informant for the Southern District of New York, which at the time was hoping to nab Robert Vesco. It's rather interesting that American National Insurance Company played such a prominent role in this operation, with three associates of the company, James Brewer, Jimmy Day, and James Wollenhouse, serving as intermediaries between Carter administration officials, such as John White and Robert Vesco. As previously discussed, the Moody family had deep ties to the FBI through Roy Cohn, a close associate of J. Edgar Hoover. It's been said that Shern Moody Jr. supplied young boys to Cohn and other guests at his ranch who were inclined toward such behaviors. At the time Billy Gate occurred, Cohn was preparing to act as an informal advisor to the soon-to-be president, Ronald Reagan. Intriguingly, Roy Cohn and Sharon Moody Jr. both appear on the fringes of this scheming. Cohn's law partner represented Kevin Crown, who was being investigated alongside James Feeney. By the Southern District of New York. In September 1979, James Brewer attended a dinner with Sharon Moody Jr., Roy Cohn, and James Wollenhaus, where they discussed the investigation into Crown and Feeney as well as the plane affair. According to the Vesco Senate report, Moody told Wollenhaus that they were going to go to the federal DA and try to make a deal to get them off the hook on the hot check charges by telling the Libyan plane story and adding a little bit to it. Subsequently, Crown wrote a scenario about all the players, the Brewers, the Feenies, the Days, and the Vescoes, and gave it to John Doyle, the chief of the criminal division in the Southern District of New York. Given the political connections and personal histories of Roy Cohn and Sharn Moody, Jr., one can't help but wonder if the two men instigated much of this activity in an attempt to tarnish the reputation of the already failing Carter administration. As expected, it didn't take long for rumors of these convoluted plots to make their way into the media. Vesco himself directly leaked information to journalist Jack Anderson who wrote 12 columns on the matter between September and October 1979. These articles detailed Vesco's attempts to elude the Justice Department's extradition requests by seeking the assistance of high-level Carter officials including Hamilton Jordan Compounding the Carter administration's troubles, James Feeney had recorded his discussions with various co-conspirators. These recordings were shown to the press by aides of Senator Orrin Hatch. As the Washington Post reported, an exotic cast appears in the tapes. The names, spoken by Feeney, Vesco, at least, Two other convicted swindlers and Libyan diplomats included Billy Carter and John C. White, the chairman of the Democratic National Committee. Senator Hatch, in a phone interview, said he wanted no dissemination of unsubstantiated allegations, but thought reporters should be able to sample for themselves the technical quality. Of the tapes. The quality of the segment was excellent. Vesco's decision to inform the Senate investigation about the tapes effectively broadened the scope of the investigation. It's possible that Vesco may have simply hoped to pressure the U.S. into dropping its extradition efforts against him with this move. However, If there were deeper motivations behind this action, the question then becomes, who was Vesco collaborating with or working for? One possible answer is that Vesco was assisting the private CIA. Shackley's network maintained a deep presence in Libya during this period. The network supposedly had information on Billy Carter's business dealings in Libya, and it was known for orchestrating covert actions against the Carter administration. Without more concrete evidence, this remains pure speculation. However, one demonstrable link between Robert Vesco and Ted Shackley's Libyan interests does exist. Edward DuCan a British Conservative Party official who played a significant role in Margaret Thatcher's early rise to political power, was deeply involved in the sale of IOS subsidiaries during the mutual fund's liquidation phase. In 1972, Ducan served as chairman of Kaiser Olman a major British banking concern. Kaiser Olman was tied to Jack DeLal, a Claremont Club member who would later fund a suspect intelligence-linked software venture that was headed by Christine Maxwell. According to Edward Duquesne's obituary, he was at the heart of a mass of intricate and generally shady financial maneuverings. Some of these included dealing with the remnants of iOS as well as Lonro, an international conglomerate controlled by Claremont Club member Roland Tiny Roland. Kaiser Ullman became Lonro's bank of choice, and Du Can found himself a seat on the company's board before eventually taking over as chairman himself. As we will discuss in depth in a later episode, Tiny Roland was a key player in the interconnected worlds of high finance, politics, and intelligence. Known for his aggressive business tactics and expansive reach, Roland's Lonro had interests in a wide range of sectors with a particular emphasis on mineral extraction in Africa. Roland was deeply connected to American, British, and Israeli intelligence, and his African holdings often provided cover for Mossad agents. His name appears repeatedly in connection to the Iran-Contra affair and he had a complex relationship with figures like Adnan Khashoggi and Robert Maxwell. Given Roland's ties and Edward Ducan's involvement with both Roland and Robert Vesco's iOS, it's unsurprising that Lonro's tentacles reached into the highest levels of the Libyan government. A Lonro subsidiary, Tradewinds Air Holdings, had a significant presence in Libya. Among its board members were Muammar Gaddafi's cousin and security advisor, Ahmed Gaddafi Dam, as well as Edward trade Tradewinds became the subject of interest for British Parliament, particularly following a letter to the British Secretary of State for Trade and Industry that was written by Mohammed Al-Fayed, the chairman of Harad's department store, and, briefly, the husband to Samira Khashoggi, Adnan Khashoggi's sister. Mohammed Al-Fayed was a one-time partner of Lonro and Roland Tiny Roland. However, by the 1980s, Al-Fayed and Roland had become bitter adversaries, with Roland reportedly attempting a hostile takeover of Al-Fayed's financial interests. In his letter to the British Secretary of State for Trade and Industry, Al-Fayed outlined a series of charges against Lonrho. While most of these concerned their business practices, they also included allegations of arms dealing with Edwin Wilson. To quote from Mohamed Al-Fayed's letter, "The Lonrho subsidiary, Tradewinds, has been named as the carrier in deals whereby ex CIA agent Edwin P. Wilson, shipped to Libya its weapons of terrorism. Wilson is presently serving 52 years in a U.S. prison for his enterprise, whilst, interestingly, a co-director in Tradewinds, was the head of Libyan security, Ahmed Gaddafadam, a cousin of Colonel Gaddafi, until 1983. Lonro's 40% partner in trade winds was Ashraf Marwan, who served fleetingly as a director and it is possible that he was acting merely as a front for Libyan interests. It is something of a coincidence that Wilson should have been arrested, Marwan sold his shareholding, and Dam resigned as a director almost at the same time. A Sunday Times article of 1984 gave some background on the Marwan-Libya involvement and it is interesting that Dam cited Marwan's office as his address in the notification of his directorship to Company's House. Intriguingly, Ashraf Marwan worked with both Egyptian and Israeli intelligence, and in 2007 mysteriously fell to his death from the balcony of his London home. To summarize, Trade Winds, a subsidiary of Lonro, was reportedly involved in Libya and named as a player in arms trafficking on behalf of Edwin Wilson, which, in other words, meant on behalf of Ted Shackley's private CIA. At the same time, Lon Rose chairman, Edward DuCan, had previously been involved with the liquidation and acquisition of IOS subsidiaries, placing him in the direct orbit of Robert Vesco. During the same time the private CIA was operating in Libya, Vesco became embroiled in interrelated Libyan business and political affairs that reached into the Carter administration, such as the dealings with Charter, Oil, and the Plain Affair. This occurred simultaneously with efforts from Shackley and his associates to undermine the Carter administration. In addition to this, The connections between Charter Oil and the Carter family were not limited to Jack McGregor and Billy Carter. In 1980, 13.7% of Charter Oil's shares were held by American Financial Corporation, which was connected to Carl Lindner, a major Republican supporter. According to the press, Carl Lindner was advising Charter Chairman Raymond Mason on corporate ventures. Lindner also had a close business relationship with Max Fisher, who himself had a close personal relationship with Ronald Reagan and was regarded as Leslie Wexner's mentor. Finishing up Billy Gates we're going to return our attention to William Casey and explore the roster of clients he represented in his private law career. A few short years before taking the reins as Ronald Reagan's campaign manager and just prior to Billy Gate, William Casey had returned to practicing private law, working in the offices of Rogers and Wells a sterling New York City law firm admired for its litigation prowess. William P. Rogers, one-half of the firm's namesake, was a confidant of Richard Nixon and served as his Secretary of State until 1973. The other half, John A. Wells, had been hand-picked by Casey to oversee a committee evaluating the SEC's policies and practices during the time Casey headed the organization. William Casey and John Wells were longtime friends and had remained close since their initial encounter during Nixon's 1960 presidential bid. As Casey was being considered for the top spot at the CIA, Rogers and Wells provided a register of clients that Casey had advised from 1976 to 1981. This roster reveals a network of Casey's close allies and business cohorts. Some notable examples include Anthony Fisher, with whom Casey co-founded the proto-Reaganomics think-tank named the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research. William Simon, a fellow Knight of Malta and Nixon's Treasury Secretary, with whom Casey formed Science Life Systems, a chain of high-tech fitness spas targeting the Olympic body. At the time, Simon was the Olympic Committee's treasurer. Casey also worked with Bear Stearns, the prominent New York investment bank. Intriguingly, Casey's legal representation of Bear Stearns coincided with Alan Greenberg's rise to CEO, a position he would hold until the early 1990s. It also overlapped with a rapid ascent and subsequent departure of Jeffrey Epstein within the bank in 1981. Coincidentally, 1981 was also the year Casey left private law to re-embrace public service as the director of the CIA. A distinctive pattern arises when examining Casey's clientele individuals with ties to organized crime, the clandestine realm of intelligence, or in some cases, to both. Deke & Co., an international banking and foreign exchange company operated by Nicholas Deke, was one such client that bridged both worlds. Nicholas Deke was an OSS veteran and his firm maintained a close relationship with the CIA. According to a 1976 New Republic Exposé of Deakin Co., Deak is said to have handled CIA funds in 1954 when the agency overthrew Iran's premier, Mohammed Mossadegh, and restored the Shah to the throne. During the Vietnam War, Deacon Co allegedly moved CIA funds through its Hong Kong office for conversion in Saigon's unofficial market. Deak officials in Hong Kong and Macau helped the CIA investigate Far East gold smuggling in the mid-1950s. As for the company's organized crime ties, between January 1977 and the summer of 1978, the bank managed accounts for one Isaac Catan. Authorities later identified Catan as the biggest drug financier in South America. Catan worked closely with the Cali and Medellin cartels, washing drug money through bank accounts in Miami and New York. Accounts belonging to Nicholas Deke were among those leveraged for this purpose, and there are indicators that the firm may have been privy to these activities. An audit by the Internal Revenue Service discovered that Deke employees submitted fraudulent currency transaction reports a tool designed to track sizable bank deposits for anti-money laundering purposes, and sometimes even neglected to file the reports altogether. The Casey Client List under Rogers and Wells also included DWG Corp., NVF, and Sharon Steele, a trio of enterprises under the command of Victor Posner, the pioneer of the contemporary hostile takeover. DWG was initially a cigar manufacturer that later morphed into the Wendy's fast food chain, while NVF, short for National Vulcanized Fiber, was the creator of Forbon, a material used in guitar picks. Meanwhile, Sharon Steele was once an industrial titan at the forefront of Pennsylvania's steel industry. According to Posner's 2002 obituary in The Economist, he would spot a company whose assets he judged were underfunded, gain control, and milk it. Some bits would be sold off, others would be closed. Previously, unconsidered treasures such as employees' pension funds, would be raided and reinvested in Posner's other companies. Posner's style of corporate raiding demanded effortless access to capital. Consequently, by the mid-1970s, he found himself mingling within the crowds surrounding Michael Milken and Drexel Burnham Lambert. By the 1980s, Posner was one of Milken's premier clients, blurring the line between where Posner's interests ended and Milken's began. Ivan Bosky, another Drexel Burnham Lambert's patron and a close associate of Posner, was also part of this circle. Intriguingly, when Bosky was hauled into court, For his part in a stock manipulation fraud involving Irish beer behemoth Guinness, Max Fisher personally advocated on Bosky's behalf. Another Posner associate worthy of scrutinizing is Miami real estate mogul Armour E. White. Armour White had chaired the Finance Committee for the Dade County Reagan for President campaign in 1980, a campaign that was nationally managed by William Casey. Posner and White likely crossed paths when Posner became interested in Florida land development through his Security Management Corporation. White was an enduring presence in Posner's world. Sometime, During the 1960s, White ascended to the role of a director at DWG and later secured a seat on the board of Sharon Steele. By the 1970s, he was catalogued as a trustee of Posner's Investment Trust. What sets Armour White apart besides his influential position within Posner's financial network Are his links to organized crime? Many of these ties stemmed from his real estate enterprise, Context Industries, which had flourished during Florida's land boom in the 1960s. Florida real estate has historically been a lucrative venture for organized crime, so it's no surprise that Context Industries soon found itself swept up in the same turbulent waters. This is demonstrated through the company's hiring of Leonard Palullo as a consultant. According to a New Jersey State Commission of Investigation report, Palullo had close ties to the Scarfo Philadelphia crime family. Nicodemo Scarfo oversaw the underbelly of Atlantic City and, under his stewardship, the city morphed from backwater destination to prominent gambling hotspot on the Upper East Coast. Even Donald Trump's interests in Atlantic City were built using concrete supplied by Scarfo's companies. Leonard Palullo seems to have been the bridge between Armor White and Nicodemo Scarfo, with Context Industries involved in the construction planning of hotels and casinos in Atlantic City. Additionally, according to a 1986 Miami Herald article, Context paid Palullo $80,000 to secure loans that eventually amounted to around $800,000. These loans originated from Sunshine State Bank, a dubious Florida savings and loan institution in which Palullo held a 6% stake. According to Whitney Webb, the magnitude of Palullo's borrowing from the bank was staggering, and upon the bank's collapse, his outstanding debt stood at over $12 million. An even more direct connection to organized crime found in Casey's client list is SCA Services, a significant waste management company. Although it bore the appearance of a legitimate business with directors and investors comprised of some of America's most successful businessmen, the corporation was continually entangled in scandals that hinted at its deep-seated underworld origins. An example of this is found in Anthony Bentrovato, who became a substantial SCA stockholder after selling his successful garbage company to SCA in 1973 for $1.7 million worth of stock. Two years later, Ben Travato was implicated in a mafia-linked conspiracy involving kickbacks from the Teamsters pension fund. Alongside him in the indictment was Teamsters official, Anthony Provenzano, who was also a key figure in the initial investigation into Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance. The connection between Anthony Ben Travato and Anthony Provenzano highlights the relationship between Waste Management and the Teamsters Union. Waste Management in New Jersey, the primary base for SCA's operations, was under the jurisdiction of Teamsters Local 945. The business agent for this local was Ernest Palmieri, who came from a long line of organized crime figures and had been appointed to this position by Genovese family capo, Peter LaPlaca. A close associate of Palmieri was Crescent Chris Rosell, the general manager of a family-owned waste management group that was later sold to SCA. Roselle ran several businesses with Anthony Gase, who also managed a number of SCA's subsidiaries. They were both involved with MSLA, a company that managed a large landfill in New Jersey that contained toxic waste. Also associated with MSLA was Charles Macaluso, one of the region's largest waste contractors who had close ties to corrupt Teamsters officials. According to a congressional report Cited by the New York Times, Macaluso was identified as a soldier in the Thierry organized crime family, Thierry here referencing Frank Thierry, a boss in the Genovese crime family. In an apparent attempt to avoid drawing attention to these associations, SCA legal counsel filed a legal document in 1978 asserting that Geiss was not involved with the company's subsidiaries. However, as Alan Block points out, the minutes of a corporate board meeting clearly indicate Geiss's position. Notably, this situation unfolded while William Casey was representing SCA through Rogers and Wells. Despite this attempt. The link between SCA and organized crime was thrust into the public eye in December 1980 following the murder of Crescent Roselle outside of his company offices in Elizabeth, New Jersey. This gangland-style shooting occurred less than a week after an FBI informant testified regarding the ties between SCA and the mob. In May 1981, New Jersey State Police Lt. Col. Justin Dentino testified that the Genovese and Gambino crime families had extensive influence over the New Jersey waste management industry, as well as significant ties to SCA. As for SCA's president, Thomas Viola, Dentino suggested That he was not a member of organized crime, but rather an associate member, a business associate. At this point, Viola was rapidly planning his exit from SCA and decided to hire Watergate familiar Joseph Califano Jr. as his attorney. The whole episode makes a brief appearance in Califano's autobiography which reads, Though Viola denied any ties of organized crime, an SCA manager had been shot and killed a few months earlier, and the garbage collection business in New Jersey was suspected of being infiltrated by the mob. I was negotiating Viola's exit. He wanted me to meet him in New York at the offices of Rogers and Wells which had been retained to do an independent investigation of allegations of mob involvement in SCA. I flew to New York for negotiations, which dragged on into the early evening. Rogers and Wells had found that Viola had no mob connections, had cleaned up SCA and removed any employees responsible for misconduct. Two final clients of William Casey that are worth discussing are Newfoundland Refining Company and Shaheen Natural Resources. These firms represented the interests of John Shaheen, an independent oil man who maintained a lasting relationship with William Casey that dated back to their time together in the OSS. John Shaheen's official biography notes that he served as an aide to General Donovan, was chief of the Special Projects Branch, and had field service in the European, Mediterranean, and Pacific theaters. Richard Harris Smith, in his History of the OSS, describes Shaheen's Special Projects Branch as a unit that was completely autonomous and reported directly to Donovan, totally independent of the regular OSS chain of command. Casey and Shaheen also shared a close connection to Richard Nixon and both men were involved in Nixon's 1960 presidential campaign. When Nixon briefly returned to private law practice, Shaheen was one of his clients. Shaheen was also responsible for introducing Nixon to Joey Smallwood, the premier of Newfoundland in Canada. At the time, Smallwood was attempting to industrialize the remote province by attracting European and American capital. Some of the firms he courted in this endeavor had clear ties to organized crime, such as Canadian Javelin, which was owned by John Doyle. John Shaheen was swayed by John Doyle, resulting in the creation of Newfoundland Refining Company and Shaheen Natural Resources, the two companies that Casey represented through Rogers and Wells. However, the Newfoundland venture was rocky for John Shaheen. In 1976, his oil refinery filed for bankruptcy, triggering a series of legal issues and causing a domino effect that soon touched his other businesses. In an urgent bid to raise money, he enlisted William Casey in an attempt to persuade the Kuwaiti National Petroleum Corporation to invest in his newfoundland oil company. When that effort failed, Shaheen turned to the open market in search of sources of crude petroleum for refining in Newfoundland. It was then that he made contact with Cyrus Hashemi, an Iranian arms dealer with close connections to Iran's post revolution government. Anyone familiar with the October surprise plot will instantly recognize the name Cyrus Hashemi. It could even be argued that the chain of events leading to the plot began with the encounter between Shaheen and Hashemi. According to the report prepared by the October Surprise Task Force, Hashemi had been identified to Shaheen as someone with good contacts in the oil communities in Iran, Nigeria, and Tunisia. Following their introduction, Shaheen solicited Hashemi in securing contracts to purchase crude oil. In 1980, Hashemi assisted Shaheen in his bid to regain control of the newfoundland refinery. According to O. Jackson Cook, an attorney who also assisted Shaheen in this effort, Hashemi assembled a group of investors who made money available to Shaheen to bid on the refinery. The FBI's electronic surveillance of Cyrus Hashemi confirms that Hashemi and Shaheen were in contact in late 1980 regarding the Newfoundland refinery. Cyrus Hashemi also appeared in the saga of the Kerry Energy Affair which was discussed earlier in this chapter. Roy Furmark, Shaheen's right-hand man in the Newfoundland Venture and a close associate of William Casey, testified during the Iran-Contra hearings that he had encountered Hashemi in the Bahamas just before Charter Oil's acquisition of Borco. According to Furmark, Hashemi was acting as a representative of the Iranian government and had been invited to participate in the negotiations by a CIA asset named Roger Tamraz. Shortly after becoming acquainted with Hashemi, John Shaheen began making advances on the Carter White House and the CIA, proposing schemes to free the hostages being held in Iran. While the CIA reportedly showed no interest in Shaheen's plan, which involved a team of cadres led by an exiled Iranian general, the October Surprise Task Force report suggests that Hashemi was involved in the scheming. According to an FBI report from that period, Shaheen stated that he mentioned Cyrus Hashemi to persons in the CIA because he determined that Hashemi might be able to play some role in either alleviating the hostage crisis or in establishing a dialogue with the Iranian government and the United States. The October Surprise Task Force report then adds, According to FBI agent Louis Stevens, Shaheen indicated during the interview that he mentioned Cyrus Hashemi to Casey approximately twice prior to Ronald Reagan's inauguration in January 1981. Stevens testified that Shaheen had sought to bring Hashemi to the attention of both Casey and officials at the CIA because Shaheen believed that Hashemi had high-level contacts in Iran to whom he could pass messages on behalf of the U.S. government. The significance of this detail is that Cyrus's brother, Jamshid Hashemi, claimed he was visited by William Casey and Roy Fermark in Washington, D.C., to allegedly discuss the hostage crisis in Iran. The October Surprise Task Force cast doubt on the veracity of Jamshid Hashemi's claims, citing the lack of independent corroboration for his account. However, meetings conducted in Madrid, Spain during 1980 were much more difficult for the task force to reconcile. According to Jamshid Hashemi, William Casey, Donald Gregg, and another unidentified man participated in two days of meetings with himself, Cyrus Hashemi and Iranian officials concerning the American hostages. These meetings are alleged to have taken place in late July, at the same time Casey was supposed to be in London for a World War II historical conference. The records of the conference attendance are reportedly unclear, leaving it uncertain whether Casey was consistently present in London. Considering the short flight time between London and Madrid, which is roughly one and a half hours, it is plausible that Casey could have traveled between these two cities without arousing significant suspicion. Despite media dismissals of this possibility, a State Department cable later surfaced and indicated that Casey had in fact been in Madrid during the relevant time frame for unknown purposes. Furthermore, Jamshid Hashemi reported using a series of aliases, including Abdullah Hashemi, Jamshid Kalaj, and Jamshid Parsa. The guest records of the Plaza Hotel, where Hashemi and Hassan Karubi allegedly stayed when the meetings took place listed names strikingly similar to these aliases. These individuals checked in and out of the hotel at irregular intervals throughout July and August 1980. Intriguingly, another name appears in the guest records alongside the probable aliases of Jamshid Hashemi. On July 23, 1980, One Robert Gray checked in to the Hotel Ritz before checking out on July 25th. It's hard to avoid the possibility that this could very well be Robert Keith Gray. At the time, Gray was working directly under William Casey for the Reagan campaign. Media speculation began to swirl. And the task force investigating the October surprise eventually turned its own attention to the possibility. However, Gray's passport showed no indications of traveling to Spain at the time. The task force subsequently accepted this as evidence of his innocence. Others were not as convinced and Susan Trento cites multiple former Gray employees as claiming Robert Keith Gray possessed several passports. Given Gray's extensive connections to high-level politics, business, and intelligence, collecting multiple passports seems entirely possible. Additionally, eyewitness accounts seem to verify that Robert Gray was indeed Robert Keith Gray. Susan Trento writes, network reporters followed through by showing a photograph of Gray to people at the hotel, many of whom said they recognized him. We're going to dive into one final section exploring the relationship between William Casey, Bobby Ray Inman, H.W. Bush, and the private CIA's involvement in the Iran deal. William Casey's appointment as the Director of Central Intelligence was hardly a popular appointment on Capitol Hill. One particularly vehement opponent was Barry Goldwater. In the 1960s, Casey branded Goldwater as a representative of an increasingly incoherent right-wing fringe laying the foundation for a grudge that would span decades. In response to Casey's possible appointment as Agency Director, Goldwater lobbied Ronald Reagan to appoint Bobby Ray Inman, the man who was largely responsible for disrupting Ted Shackley's activities and dissolving Task Force 157. As we know, Goldwater's influence only went as far as securing Inman the position of deputy director. This dichotomy at the peak of the intelligence hierarchy was part of a cascade of factional disputes throughout Reagan's first presidential term. According to Joseph Persico, the rift was so severe that the CIA bureaucracy was split into polarized camps eventually reaching the point where Casey's staff and Inman's staff barely communicated with one another. Casey even sidelined Inman from major operations, including early support operations for the Contras, and even took it upon himself to plant stories about Inman in the media. Moreover, Casey restructured the agency's operational division in a manner that allowed him direct access to President Reagan, an access that Inman was not granted. Joseph Trento, drawing on his sources from inside the intelligence community, argues that the rivalry between the two men was capitalized on by then-Vice President George H. W. Bush. Bobby Ray Inman who had a long-standing relationship with H.W. Bush, served as his eyes and ears within the agency. As Joseph Trento portrays it, H.W. Bush was walking a tightrope. Inman considered himself a friend of Bush's and was reporting to Bush on Casey's activities within the CIA. At the same time, Inman's great rival, Ted Shackley, was also reporting to Bush. Adding to the complexity, Shackley and his closest associates, which included Richard Secord and Thomas Clines, were becoming increasingly active in Casey's off-the-books operations, apparently walking their own tightrope between the warring factions. Scattered details throughout Joseph Persico's biography of William Casey add credence to Trento's claims. For instance, when Inman accepted the position of deputy director, he wanted H. W. Bush present at the welcoming ceremony. Casey was less than amused, and told Inman that George Bush is not welcome out here. In another instance, Casey was infuriated upon finding out about Inman's frequent meetings and intelligence briefings with Bush. After stepping down as deputy director in 1981, Inman pursued a career in the private sector where the influence of H.W. Bush seemed to persist. During the mid-1980s, Inman oversaw an electronics industry holding company called Westmark. This company owned Tracor, a major defense contractor that manufactured electronics for weapon systems. Intriguingly, the key group supporting Tracor was a network of in-laws and business associates centered around Walter Misher. The same Walter Mischer that investigative journalist Pete Bruton had linked to H.W. Bush, and his private intelligence operations. Other evidence suggests that H. W. Bush was operating his own intelligence network within the Reagan administration. According to renowned journalist Seymour Hersh, H. W. Bush, cautious of Casey, established a team of military operatives that bypassed the national security establishment, including the CIA, and was not answerable to congressional oversight. Key figures in this team included then-assistant to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Vice Admiral Arthur Morrow, Bush's Chief of Staff Daniel Murphy, and Donald Gregg, a former CIA officer. Who had become Bush's advisor on national security. As mentioned earlier, Donald Gregg had ties to Ted Shackley and was possibly involved in the October surprise. Additionally, Joseph Trento further suggests that Gregg acted as a channel of communication between H.W. Bush and Ted Shackley. The Reagan administration, despite its public image of strength and unity, was internally riddled with rivalry, factionalism, and double-crossing, with only brief moments of fragile cooperation. This was the environment that incubated the infamous Iran-Contra affair, in which the U.S. government violated its own laws in an effort to fund the Nicaraguan Contra's in their battle against the Sandinista government. This covert operation was very much the legacy of the private CIA, Ted Shackley, and Edwin Wilson. Although Wilson was already imprisoned for his Libyan ventures, members of this network, such as Thomas Kleins, Richard Secord, and even Robert Keith Gray, were active participants in this new covert war. Oliver North, Richard Secord's primary partner in orchestrating many of the complex schemes that characterized the Contra support efforts, seems to have been working on behalf of William Casey. This was after Congress prohibited Casey from directly supporting the Nicaraguan rebels. In response to this, Casey stepped in to keep Oliver North in the National Security Council when North was scheduled to rotate back to his regular marine duties. According to Seymour Hersh, it was H.W. Bush's private intelligence apparatus that leaked details of Iranian arms sales to the press. The close relationship between William Casey and Oliver North seems to add credence to these allegations. In the aftermath of the scandal, Ted Shackley was summoned to testify. While he was never officially linked to the affair, behind closed doors, some investigators expressed doubts about his claimed innocence. However, the information he shared during his testimony was revealing. As part of his duties for John Deus, Shackley enlisted the help of a former Slovak agent named Navzar Razmara to gather information on Middle Eastern oil and the geopolitical circumstances of the Iran-Iraq war. Through Razmara, Shackley was connected with a network of former Iranian military officers who still had some ties with the post-revolution Iranian government. In November 1984, as the Lebanese hostage crisis spurred the National Security Council into high gear, Shackley and Razmara traveled to Hamburg, Germany to meet with ex-Savak General Manushar Hashemi, who is of no relation to Cyrus and Jamshid Hashemi. The apparent aim of this meeting was to introduce Shackley and Rosmara to interesting Iranians who were traveling in Europe at the time. Also present at this meeting was Manushar Gorbanifar, a dubious businessman and arms dealer with connections to both the old pro-Shah military officers as well as Khomeini's new government intelligence apparatus. During that day, many meetings were held and numerous details about them are censored in the publicly accessible version of Shackley's testimony. However, it is evident that Gorbonifar came to Shackley with questions regarding acquiring TOW missiles, anti-tank guided missiles the Iranians desired in hopes of tipping the balance of their war against Iraq in their favor. Shackley insists he rebuffed Gorbanafar’s advances, however, tow missiles were not the only thing on Gorbanafar’s agenda. He suggested that, for a price, he could orchestrate the release of the American hostages in Lebanon via his Iranian contacts. Shackley's account of these happenings seems somewhat implausible. The tow missiles that ended up being shipped to Iran were not intended to finance the Contras, but rather to ensure that Iran would use its influence to free hostages held by Hezbollah in Lebanon. Intriguingly, one of these hostages was actually a CIA station chief whom Shackley knew and the weapon cells were executed by individuals with close connections to Shackley. Adding to the suspicious circumstances, Shackley had penned a memo of his encounter with Gorbonifar and sent it to Lieutenant General Vernon Walters at the State Department. This memo was brought up during Robert McFarlane's deposition by Senator William Cohen, of Maine reading from the house select committee report Cohen you recall that Ted Shackley back in 1984 sent a memo to Vernon Walters suggesting we have a new relationship with Iran were you aware of that McFarlane no sir Cohen that that recommendation was discarded and That the memo was retyped in June of 1985. Actually, June 7 of 1985. It was sort of retyped and given to Michael Ledeen. Are you aware of that? McFarlane, no sir. Cohen, that Michael Ledeen gave it to Oliver North. McFarlane, I didn't know that. Cohen, are you aware of a John Shaheen McFarlane, the name is familiar, I believe he was associated with Mr. Khashoggi Cohen, actually he was a very close friend of Bill Casey's. They served together in World War II in the OSS and John Shaheen floated a possible hostage initiative on behalf of Cyrus Hashemi. That proposal was determined by the State Department to be unworthy of pursuit. Were you aware that was being done at the same time we had paper being prepared by a recommendation by John Shaheen? McFarlane No, sir, I don't. Cohen Were you aware that the State Department looked behind the Shaheen proposal and saw Mr. Gorbonifar? Cyrus Hashemi, who set the October Surprise Conspiracy in motion through his contact with John Shaheen, was indeed a close ally and business associate of Gorbanafar. Both men navigated the obscure world of arms dealing until Gorbanafar severed ties with Hashemi, opting to partner with Adnan Khashoggi instead. According to to Gordon Thomas and Matt Dillon, Gorbanifar and Robert Maxwell knew each other well, having been introduced by Cyrus Hashemi. Subsequently, both Khashoggi and Gorbanifar were enlisted by Israel to aid in trafficking arms to Iran. This was done in an effort to strengthen Iran's fight against Iraq, enabling Israel's rivals to continue weakening each other. David Kimchi, a former Mossad officer and then Director General of Israel's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, supervised this operation. Robert Maxwell, who played a supporting role in this scheme, was also actively assisting Israel's intelligence. It is entirely possible that Shackley was aware of these complex arrangements and tailored his testimony regarding the 1984 Hamburg meeting to conceal his involvement. In his memo, he essentially offered Gorbanifar services to the State Department. According to ex-CIA officer William Corson, Shackley did this because Israeli intelligence suggested it. This kind of interaction between Shackley's network and the other factions mentioned in this chapter with Israeli intelligence would become a repeated theme throughout the Reagan era and beyond. And that takes us to the end of chapter 6. As always, make sure you're looking at this information with a critical eye and drawing your own conclusions. Be sure to support Winnie Webb. Go check out her work, buy her books. And I'd also like to give a shout out to Ryan Dawson. I learned about a lot of this information from him originally, and I think that it's a shame that he's been so heavily censored. So I'm going to drop links to his website and some of his other platforms in the description below. So if you're interested in checking out any of his work, please do so. And I think that wraps everything up. I'm looking forward to seeing you for chapter seven. Love you all. Peace.